the way we see ourselves is the expectations that we have upon ourselves. So I want to build up my body because then other people are going to view me this way. But you're still constantly relying on feedback from others for your own personal self-worth. And that is basically another game of distraction. everyone welcome back to the podcast and please excuse my raspy voice i don't know what's going on i'm hoping that it's not the coronavirus (laughs) but uh, my throat has been a little bit off uh, as of lately so uh, do excuse my poor poor voice right now today's episode is brought to you by fitbod the number one fitness app out on the app store you guys know i've been using it for so long In a nutshell, FitBot allows you to track all of your fitness progress in the gym. You simply plug in all the different equipment that you have access to, whether it's a bench, a barbell, dumbbells, a pull-up bar, you name it. You tell it which muscle groups you want to target. If you want a push workout, a pull workout, upper body only, lower body only. If you want to do full body, if you want to do strength training, if you want to do bodybuilding, it's got it all. It's awesome. And later on in this episode, we're going to be talking about some of the weight training tips that my guest has to share with you but an app like this is perfect having this as a sidekick in the gym being able to track everything while you're doing your workout whatever that may be fitbot is only going to make everything so much better simply visit fitbot.me slash bananiac f-i-t-b-o-d dot m-e slash b-a-n-a-n-i-a-c to receive a free trial plus an awesome discount if you do end up signing up. If you guys want some healthy, tasty vegan recipes that are also very simple to make, head on over to bananiac.com, which is my website, and I have my ebook on there, which you guys can check out, download if you're interested. I share 25 of the simplest and tastiest recipes that I make on a weekly basis. So if you guys are starting out on a whole food plant-based diet, you're wondering what foods to make, why not check out that little ebook that I made? Keeps you fed, keeps me fed because it helps support this podcast and other ways that you can help support this podcast is by clicking on that amazon banner you can do all your amazon shopping at no extra cost but it will help support this podcast which i hope you like because obviously you're listening to me talk about it right now i also have a link to audible which you guys can try out if you like it you can check out all your favorite audiobooks on there as well as many other resources on the website that's bananiac.com and seriously if you guys are a fan of this podcast if you guys like these great guests that i have on which i work very hard to bring on this show i'm trying to bring unique guests that you probably don't get to hear talk about all these great topics that we do talk about on this podcast i work very hard to get them on the show so if you guys can just please at the very very least Head over to Apple Podcasts on This Is Banana's landing page and give it a five-star rating. Write up a review of some of your thoughts about the podcast, what you 
like about it, it would mean the world to me and it would help get this podcast out to more people and ultimately help touch more lives. Today's guest is Mike Maller. Mike is a nutrition supplement designer and a hormone optimization enthusiast. Mike has been in the fitness industry for well over a decade and has taught workshops all over the US and overseas. He's done a lot of work with hormone optimization, nutrition, training. He's also the author of Live Life Aggressively, What Self-Help Gurus Should Be Telling You. And you guys can pick up a copy of it on the website as well, bananiac.com. And in this episode, we do talk about ways in which you can optimize your hormones. It's becoming such a popular topic now with more people being concerned about their hormone levels because it affects a lot. It affects a lot of our health and also a lot of factors affect our hormones. So we talk about all that in this episode as well as other aspects such as veganism, how he became a vegan, we talk about the benefits of a plant-based diet, some of the supplements he recommends in certain situations. We talk about hair loss as well as a personal story of mine that I've experienced with hair loss and also, how to beat depression and a whole lot more. So without further ado, welcome this week's guest, Mike Maller. I moved out of the DC area in 2002. I moved to Los Angeles. That's when I got into my fitness business. Got I got out of Virginia, got to Los Angeles, was there for about four years. And then my wife and I moved out here in, to, in 2006 and been out here ever since. So I've been out here for a long time now. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm sure Vegas is a is a fun uh, fun place to live. I used to live in Miami and kind of having that big city like you know culture and environment. It's it's different. Uh, I don't know yeah. if like the the place you lived in near DC was kind of like smaller, but but like going into a big city for me growing up in like a small town, like it, you know it was like all different. Yeah. Like you know what I mean. I was like a like a like a lost puppy, you know, <laughs> like yeah, super curious yeah. to explore. McLean, McLean was pretty. McLean was pretty small when I grew up there. Now it's huge. I mean, now it's based. Now basically, the line of where DC ends and McLean begins is is pretty fuzzy. Where before there was a pretty clear line of demarcation, but now that whole area has blown up a great deal. I mean, I was there in 2015. That's the most recent time I've been there. And it, it was almost unrecognizable. I mean, it was developing quite a bit even when I lived there. I remember it used to be Tyson's Corner Mall, right? It used to just be Tyson's Corner. And then they built Tyson's Corner too. As if one shopping mall is not enough, you have to build another one across the street. Right across it's, the street. Those are consumerism society of buy, 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 buy be happy. Yeah. But it, it used to be such a nice area where it was completely forested. It's hard to even imagine that now from McLean Hamlet, where my parents' house is, all the way to Tyson's Corner. I mean, you could walk through the woods almost all the way there. And then they cut down all of those trees to make these ugly apartment complexes. They built that Tyson's Corner too. I don't know what it is about our society where if there's any open land anywhere, people feel like that's a waste and mm -hmm. we have to put something on it. Right. I mean, Las Vegas is the same way now. Las Vegas was very underdeveloped when we first came out here. And now there's a, a major street called St. Rose Parkway just outside our neighborhood in Seven Hills. And that used to be a used to be quite a bit of barren land. It's all being developed now. There's a casino on one end. There's apartment complexes everywhere. The Raiders football team are coming here. So they built a performance center for them. There's all kinds of crappy fast food restaurants and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's just totally overdeveloped. And I think sometimes. 
it's just too much. It, yeah, it definitely can be. It's sad. And it's sad that we even have to ruins an area. Yeah, we, we have to like label it as conservation. Like why? You know, why? Why? Like yeah. have to label <laughs> yeah. it in order to protect it. Yeah, yeah it's, it's crazy. Right. right. Now we have to block off certain parts of nature. And, and like you said, call it a conservation or a park or something like that, where before it was just stuff that was there. You, you, you just drove if you walk through it. It wasn't something. At least we're protecting it, though. I guess that's the good thing is that at least we have some land blocked off where it says, hey, we're not going to develop here. Red Rock National Park is a really nice area here. It's One thing about I like about Las Vegas is that small town living, but big city action next door. So if you want to go to a concert, if you want to go have a good time, good nights out, 15 minutes away. If you want to an hour away, you're in the mountains, Mount Charleston. You don't even feel like you're close to Las Vegas. 20 minutes away, you're at Red Rock Park. And Red Rock's done a pretty good job of not having – there's a couple of neighborhoods on the way there. But once you're there, you don't feel like you're in Las Vegas anymore. But they're trying to develop there as well, pretty close to it. I go, leave it alone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's got to be some areas that we just preserve for the sake of preserving. We don't have to monetize everything. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, especially Las Vegas is such a huge tourist attraction you know so many people come for the casinos and they just want more and more of that to just keep building but yeah i mean i've never been to las vegas i know a little bit about it and i know about the mountains surrounding the area um alex honnold before i think he lives in vegas too that the climber that uh put out the documentary oh yeah yeah sure. yeah free solo yeah, yeah, right um he lives out yeah, there yeah right free solo. yeah and he talks about yeah. like the beautiful nature aspect of vegas and i i just can't wait personally to visit vegas one one day to see both like the yeah, city side and out, yeah duh, i would love yeah, you should that. definitely come out you come out i'll show you around a bit but the thing about las vegas is that no one thinks of this. I mean, it's changing now, but for the most part, when we first moved here, no one really thought of this as a place you could actually live, including us. So we came out just for vacation. And then I had a couple of friends out here that are still out here. And I go, man, if people actually live out here, because when, when you tell someone you live in Las Vegas, they think you live in a casino. They think you live on the strip. They're like, oh, I don't know if I can handle living on the strip. I'm like, no one lives on the strip. <laughs> you know, That's right. like saying I live in, that's like saying if you live in, what 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 city is Disneyland in? Is it Anaheim or something like that? So if you say I live in Anaheim, people don't assume that you live at Disneyland, but it's, it's that kind of connection. Yeah, sure. So out here in our neighborhood, Henderson, it's just like any other nice neighborhood in America. A lot of people here never even go to the Strip. They have this really negative view of it, right? They have this just really dismissive view of that they're too good for the Strip, which I think is silly too because that's where the fun is. But a lot of people feel that way and they never go there. I mean, I know people that have lived outside. I know people who have lived 15 minutes from the strip who haven't been there in 10 years. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just something that like, you know, you probably go and see often when you first move there. But then you just get right. used to it after that, you know, like like D.C. for me and the monuments yeah. like it's, you know, I've seen them That's so right. many times. Yeah, but yeah. people outside of D.C. go crazy over it. So I, I it's usually totally relate. Someone you know from out of town wants to go see it, then you end up taking them there. Yeah. I like going to a lot of concerts. That's one of my favorite things to do. And pretty much all of them. Sometimes there's they're in one of the local casinos, but most of the time it's down there on the strip. I like the strip though personally. I wouldn't want to every time I go there there's kind of an air of excitement and it's, the people watching is fun and so forth. I like the energy down there. I wouldn't want to be around it all the time. I wouldn't want to work there. I certainly wouldn't want to live there. But I like the fact that it's there. Where you could say, I mean, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur, so I'm at home a lot. And I could have a Monday night where I'm going, you know what, I'm fed up of working right now. And it could be 11 o'clock at night. 
and I can just get in the car and go somewhere. And, and there'll, there'll be more action on a Monday night in Vegas than most Friday nights in any other city or town in America. And that's cool. I like that. You can be spontaneous here. That's what I like about it. I'm super into concerts as well. I am straight edge, so I don't even drink anymore. I gave it up actually when I was 21. But concerts, like I love going out. I love having a good time. And uh, you mentioned you like concerts as well. Are you into like rock or what, what kind of bands are you into? I like, are, are you in with, with the straight edge? Did you get into that from the hardcore punk? My favorite band uh, ever uh, is Story of the Year. I don't know if you've heard of them before, but yeah, I've heard of them. Sure. Uh, those yeah. guys kind of were straight edge in the beginning. Now they're a little older and they'll drink. Uh, and, and, you know, it's totally cool. I have nothing against people drinking. Um, but I always like that aspect of, you know, they're like, you know, they don't have to drink to be cool. They don't have to do all, any of that to fit in. Like they were responsible dudes, like growing up with, you know, they had families and stuff. And I always like, they were a huge inspiration for me. And so the last drink, funny enough, was actually with the singer of Story of the Year. So I had my beer with him and I was like, dude, this is awesome. Like I just bought my favorite singer a beer and like, I'm going to call it quits now, <laughs> you know? And who knows if it's going to be like that for the rest of my life or not, but it's just, you know, something that works for me, it but um, to you. it speaks to you now. And that's great. When I was growing up, the hardcore bands such as Gorilla Biscuits and Youth of Today, they were really pushing that straight edge narrative. And then a few years later, Earth Crisis, that's one of the bigger bands that come out of the hardcore scene. Now it's a little bit more ubiquitous. But at that time, people had the X's on their hands and stuff like that. It was the people I knew that were straight edge were heavily connected to the hardcore scene. So I wouldn't say I'm not straight edge. I rarely ever drink. Right. I mean, I don't have any alcohol at the house. When I go out, I might have a drink. I really don't like drinking a lot to excess at all because I don't like being hungover. I don't like the way it feels. It's horrible for your body hormonally, and I'm really into hormone optimization. I, I like marijuana more for recreation. That can be a trap too, though. I know people People say it's not addictive, but it can definitely, it may not be physically addictive the way heroin or harder drugs can be, but it's it can definitely become addictive or habit forming. And I know people that do way too much of it. So I think the ideal situation is not to really need anything. So I like the appeal. I like the idea of straight edge. Sometimes that becomes the drug too, though, where someone is straight edge and now they want everyone else to be straight edge around them. And this yeah, happens with yeah. vegans as well. That's a lot of the criticism with some vegans is usually it's someone who just became a vegan, right? They became, they've been vegan for two weeks and they think, okay, now I got to tell everyone else about this. And I, I've never been someone that thinks that methodology is effective. I think what's better is if you have this very appealing lifestyle, you carry yourself in a way where people are going, he has really, he has himself really well together, or she looks great. She's, she really has herself together. I think people naturally become inquisitive. They start asking you questions. What's your deal? And then they find out you follow a plant-based diet or you're straight edge or whatever it is that you're doing that's positive for yourself. Let them be inquisitive because they're more likely to dive into it rather than it can, it, you, you could actually have something that someone is probably interested in. But if you come at them in an aggressive way saying you should be doing this, your natural response or most people's natural response is to be defensive. So ultimately, it's not effective is where I'm going. 100 percent. I'm very passionate about uh you know, people going vegan and on my YouTube channel, like it's, it's people coming to me. So obviously like they're going to find that. But in reality, as a person, like I don't mention that I don't mention I'm straight edge. Of course, like 
somebody offers me a drink, you know, I'll turn it down and, and say, you know, I don't drink. But I love the fact that when people will ask me like, oh, you don't drink? And then a million other questions are followed by it. And so I think, you know, yeah. letting people yeah. like to their curiosity and letting them ask what they want is, I think, a better um, a better situation than me just giving everything up front and completely rejecting what I have to say. I, I don't know if that made right. sense, but I 100% agree with that. Yeah. I mean, when I got into the fitness industry as a, a kettlebell instructor and I'm teaching workshops and I was known as the heavy kettlebell guy, right? I was always lifting very heavy kettlebells and teaching workshops where I demonstrated moves with what people considered heavy kettlebells. So people would look at my abilities and go, what's your diet like? Because often we make a correlation between diet and performance. And then they would be like, wow, you've been vegan? How long? I've been, I'm 46 now. I've been on a vegan diet since I was 20. It's when I first got exposed to it at Lewis and Clark College back in 1994. And then people are just blown away. They're like, wow. But then they usually think, okay, you're achieving these goals in spite of your diet, right? That's the first response is, is you must be genetically gifted, which I'm not. I'm genetically gifted in the sense that I'm healthy, but my parents weren't very athletic or naturally strong or anything like that. You know, these are things that I spent many years building on my own. So to say, to, I, th I think people like to diminish things when they don't really understand it. They go, oh, it's got to be your genetics. And that way they don't have to look into it further or you're doing it in spite of that. But why can't we use the opposite argument and say, okay, athletes that are performing at a really high level who eat meat, that's in spite of the fact that they eat meat. If you say that, it sounds crazy. But if someone is performing at a high level, an athlete, and he or she is eating a vegan diet, it's always, oh, it's well, they're, they're, they're just making it work. They haven't done it for all, they're, they're in the a vegan honeymoon phase, it's going to wear off at some point. Or they're just genetically gifted, so they can make anything work. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. So, those kind of incredulous responses that come. Or if they, if let's say there's a UFC fighter, and like, I know you've had Mac Danzig on the show. Yeah, definitely. I, I do a podcast with my friend Sincere Hogan. We had Mac on a while back, and I don't know if we brought it up when he was on the show. But whenever he lost a fight, there would always be this narrative of, "Oh, well, you know, that's because of his vegan diet." But if he won a fight, no one would say, man, that we got to look into this vegan diet because Mac is killing it. If he won the ultimate fighter, let's look into his vegan diet. It was more in spite of that. But whenever someone who eats meat loses a fight, no one ever brings that up as a possibility. Yeah. It's like, oh, Connor must have lost that fight because he eats too much steak. Right. So no one brings that up. No. So I, I just think it I just think it's funny how people cherry pick arguments, how they for for their own biases. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And another good example is like uh, Joe Rogan was on like Patrick Baboumian's case, like how, you know, claiming that he was using steroids and like a bunch of like BS, like, why don't you congratulate the guy? Look oh, how yeah, big right. he is, like his strength, like using anything you can to like bring him down. And like, I like Joe, I, I don't know him personally, of course, but I mean, I I think, yeah, open-minded dude. Like, yeah. I, Joe's, Joe's been very complimentary of me on his show over the years. And I met him in person one time in Los Angeles. This is way before he even started doing the podcast. I mean, this is 2006. And I found him to be a very nice guy. He was very, just very approachable. I saw the way he interacted with fans and so forth. I thought he was a very cool guy. He, he definitely has some weird anti-vegan bias though where it's like almost like an obsession i mean he talks about the vegan why the vegan diet doesn't work more than vegans talk about why the diet does work right right, <laughs> right. so he's, he's the arguments that he says he finds annoying all these annoying vegans always pitching on stuff well no one talks about 
anti-veganism more than him. So it's basically just as annoying, but somehow it's not annoying because he's against it. But I think James Wilkes did a superb job when he went on there. I mean, you couldn't have done a better. I mean, the only thing I could say that maybe was a little bit too, I mean, he went on there and just obliterated all of the debunks, the so-called debunks of his movie. I mean, he obliterated it, not with his opinion, but with actual science. Uh, the only thing I could say is that maybe he was a little bit too pedantic. In other words, he just kept on going on and on and on about one thing. It's like, okay, you made your point, but I also understand where he's coming from. He didn't want to, he wanted to show just an overwhelming amount of research to back up his points. So he did, he did a great job. And you can tell at the beginning of the episode, they were both kind of coming at him hard, right? As the show went on, everybody just started shutting up. And then it got to a point where Joe turned to Chris and said, well, well, Chris, he's destroying all your arguments. What do you have to say about that? Yeah, yeah. You know? It's like, okay, you, you were very agreeable with him when it was just you and Chris. Now we have James coming on. And James kept on saying, look, look, I'm not even a scientist. I'm not even an expert in this stuff. I'm just a fighter and a guy who teaches combat to military. And even I can go through all of this science. This guy supposedly is an expert. Right. And I loved how he said – you're really doing a disservice to your audience by bringing on people like this. I thought that yeah, was great. It was. Because in the past, there have been, there have been people that are, are vegan on Joe's show, but they tend to be very – I don't even know if this is on purpose, but the episode tends to be more of a, just a pleasant dialogue and everybody's somewhat agreeable. And maybe they agree to disagree and they touch on things a little bit. But no one's ever gone on the show the way James did where he's extremely well-researched, been working on this movie for seven years. It reminded me of my – in college, I had to do a senior thesis defense, and I wrote about the oppression of Muslim women. You know, what factor does Islam play in the oppression of Muslim women? And I spent the entire year writing this thesis. It was basically a book. It's about 140 pages. Oh, wow. And then at the, at the end of it, you turn in the book. You, you turn in the thesis. Your professor goes through it, and then a final part of your grade is you have to defend it with your professor and another professor. So they come in there and try to drill you. Now, these guys both came in and they're they're asking what they think are tough questions. But I knew this topic so well because I'd spent so much time. There's no way they could possibly trip me up because they didn't spend the time that I spent working on this, reading dozens of books, thinking about it and so forth. So every time they tried to trip me up, I was able to just pull passages out of the Quran or the Prophet's Hadiths or any of that stuff and defend myself. And I wore them down the same way that James wore down Joe and Chris. So it reminded me of that a lot. Because I remember when I went in there, I was somewhat intimidated until they started asking me questions. And I realized, you know what? I know exactly what to say. Every single time they tried to squash something I said, I knew exactly how to retort without having to think about it. So they never tripped me up once. And the same thing with James. Like he was never stumped, not one time. And it got to the point where Chris realized he was way out of his league real fast. I mean, within the first hour, you could tell he was starting to get demoralized. <laughs> I mean, I feel like Chris was starting to, I feel like he was starting to like filibuster, like, you know, for a couple of moments, like he had nothing right. to say. He would just like ramble on and right. on about something irrelevant. Right. I think, yeah, James did a great job. And um, when you said, uh, or when James said he was doing a disservice, like, I don't think it was even a personal attack. Like I thought, I think no, like no, maybe some people in the comments, but I mean, it is what it is. Like, why are you going on a show that millions of people listen to and you're just spewing out all this misinformation? It's dangerous in a way. I mean, nothing against Chris. I'm sure he's a great guy, but can't, you know, you can't well, it do reminds that. Me of, it reminds me of when Dave Asprey went on Joe's show back in the day, right? And no one had ever heard of this guy. Bulletproof coffee man. None of that stuff had taken off the way. 
I mean, now you, I've, I've been to London before and you go to a coffee shop and they have bulletproof coffee on the menu. So this thing has become totally ubiquitous. A large part of that is because of Dave Asprey's early appearances on Joe's show. So he was on the show two or three times and everyone's talking about how brilliant this guy is and, oh man, we learned so much, blah, 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 blah. And then it came out that he was discredited in some way. And I forget exactly what the details were, but it turned out that a lot of the stuff, a lot of the claims he were making were easily debunked. And they brought that up on the show, but the horses are already out of the barn. You know, he's already been on the show several times. So they did a show where they talked about how, oh, we shouldn't trust anything that guy has to say. And a lot of the stuff he's saying is quackery. But how many people saw that episode versus the few times he was on there, first few times he was on there? And it's not always, I mean, he's a, I mean, Joe's not a professional journalist, right? He's not he's not someone who's going to vet every single guest. That's not the nature of his show. It's more of he's more of an entertainer and he brings on interesting people for interesting conversations. And that's all great. And that's why people like the show. So I, I don't think it's his responsibility necessarily to vet every single person, and every claim they make. But at the same time, you have to be a little bit more skeptical of what people are saying rather than just jump on the bandwagon because it sounds good. And I think he's learned that as he's gone along, too. But but, but it's dangerous, like you said, when you have so much influence. And I think it was a salient point that James made saying you're doing a discredit to your audience because you're just bringing on people that – essentially are bringing up arguments that you so you want to agree with these people you're bringing on experts that you know already agree with what you're saying and that's lies that a lot of us deal with all the time you know it's not always easy to have to have a conversation with someone that is on the opposite side of the spectrum especially when you're doing a show your, your natural inclination is going to be oh yeah i like what this person had to say let me get him or her on the show so we can have this great conversation about why we all agree with each other on various topics. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. I, I, I agree with that. Um, especially as like a podcast host, it's you know all the guests that I normally have on are people who eat a plant based diet or you know are into like fitness or we have some sort of commonality. Um, right. But yeah, it does take it does take um you know that type of personality to be able to have an open mind. First of all, like if I'm like wrong about something, I want to be able to accept that and, and to let the other person, you know, have the spotlight. Um, but yeah, it does take a special personality. I don't know if I could do it, to be honest with you. But I think uh, yeah. I think we, we need more of that, though. And I do uh, like what Joe does because he's he's even on a 100 percent carnivore diet now just as an experiment. But I love the fact right. that he has just anyone on the show and, and has that opportunity to talk about really pretty yeah. much anything. And that that experiment that, that that experiment's not going to last long. You know, there's, no. yeah. I can tell yeah. you that. Just look at the look at the main propagator of the carnivore diet, right, Dr. Sean Baker. I don't think he's even officially a doctor anymore. I think he lost his license a while back. I might be wrong about that, but anyway, that point aside, his blood work, which I'll give him credit, he revealed his blood work, his testosterone levels and glucose levels and so forth. He made that public, but his testosterone levels were the worst testosterone levels ever see, ever seen, period. I mean, they were abysmally low, not, e not even in the low range of normal. And being in the normal range does not mean you're optimal. You could be in the normal range and you're way below where you should be to be at your best, both phys physically, mentally, sexually, you name it. And he was way below that. I've seen men in their 70s that had twice, three times the levels of what he had there. And then despite not having a gram of carbohydrates, which everyone blames for insulin resistance and losing insulin sensitivity, diabetes, et cetera, 
He didn't have a gram of carbohydrates in his diet, assuming that it's genuinely 100% just meat-based, yet his glucose was through the roof. It was at 126, which is considered diabetic. <laughs> you know? Yeah, crazy. I'm amazed anyone still follows it is where I'm going. After the guy who's the main propagator of it put out his blood work, it'd be one thing if you put out his blood work and it's amazing lab work. At least I look at my insulin sensitivity, look how great my testosterone levels are, look at my cholesterol, et cetera, all the markers. Then I could get it. I'd be like, all right, that doesn't mean it's going to work for you necessarily, but I, but at least he can say, I know it works for me. Look at my results. But that lab work showed that it doesn't even work for you. If you went to any physician who understands hormones or health, they would be extremely concerned looking at that lab work. I, I sent his lab work to a friend of mine, Dr. Mark Gordon. He's been on Joe's show. He's been on my show many times. He's an expert in traumatic brain injuries, and he works with a lot of soldiers with PTSD symptoms related to hormone decline just from having their brains damaged. It shuts down hormone production. But anyway, I sent him that lab work, and he thought this person was a friend of mine. He called me up in a minute. He's like, hey, it's, it's like I need to talk to you about this lab work you just sent over. And I was like, oh, no, it's not a friend of mine. I was just showing you someone who's out there speaking a lot about a certain kind of diet. And he confirmed everything I had to say. And this is a guy who doesn't have any kind of vegan bias, I might add. You know, Dr. Mark Gordon's a meeting and all that. But he's looking at this lab work. It doesn't matter what the guy's doing. It's not good, is my point. And lab work is a lie. So the truth is always in your numbers. You can say whatever you want. But if you have lab work that – and, yeah, sometimes the lab work is incorrect and you do it again. But I really doubt much would be different with, with the lab work. And then you're trying to rationalize the numbers. The funny thing that The funny thing I found the most is that – if a vegan had those lab numbers, people would crucify that person. They'd be like, oh, look at this vegan. He's got no testosterone. His glucose is – he's diabetic and so forth. But a lot of times when at least vegans I know put out their lab work, it's all really good. Glucose is healthy. Testosterone levels are good. So – and then like I said, people look at that and go, well, you know, that's just someone who's making it work in spite – of other factors and so forth. So there's still so much misinformation about nutrition. And I, I thought the game changers, I thought it was a really good, I, mean, I, I liked the movie. And also I remember meeting James. I'll tell you some interesting backstory. I met James at the Forks Over Knives premiere. John Joseph of the Cro-Mags, he invited me to come out as his guest. And then James and I actually started having a dialogue by email. He was still a fighter in the UFC at this point, And he said he was just getting into vegan nutrition. And he wanted to talk to me about some things. And I go, well, hey, I'm going to be in L.A. for this movie premiere. I want you to come out. So he came out. And while we're waiting to go into the movie, he and I were chit-chatting. And he said he had the idea for Game Changers even back then. It was at the extremely early stages. Where, where was this? Was this in Woodstock, New York? No, it was in West Hollywood. Uh, okay, because I had gone to a uh, Forks Over Knives event back in 2013 at, um, on the Esselstyn Farm. And he was yeah, like was showing like little bits. Yeah, yeah. So you probably saw a little bit of that. That's awesome. Yeah, no, no, that's actually, really cool. This before twenty, this was before twenty thirteen. This was twenty eleven. Actually, I want to say. Oh no, kidding! That long ago. Yeah. So it was an early premiere. Wow. It was. I'm pretty sure it was 2011. I'll have to double check, but I'm pretty sure it right. was back. It was, it was quite a while ago. I know. It, I know. <laughs> I know. Crazy. I know. It was before 2013. I think this is before the movie was on Netflix. It was. It was before it really proliferated. Yeah, yeah. James had the idea for Games Changers back then, and honestly, when I heard him talking about it, I go, eh, "It's a cool idea," but I doubt he's going to do anything with it, just because I heard I hear so many people talking about stuff, and it just goes out into the into a black hole, never to be seen again. 
But to give him credit, I would get these updates from him every couple of years talking about the progression. And then at one point he had James Cameron involved and then so all these other things. They actually came out to film some footage with me in 2016. It didn't make the final cut. And honestly, I, I even recommended to them, I go, I don't think you should even bother coming out to film me because I'm not an athlete. I'm a guy who's really into training. At that time, I was teaching a lot of kettlebell workshops. Now I'm more focused on my nutrition supplements. But it, it, didn't, it, didn't, it didn't have a compelling narrative was my honest opinion. And they're like, well, we, we want to come out anyway. We think we'll get some good footage. I'm like, all right, you know, fine. If you guys want to come out, let's do it. So anyway, he came out and it was a pretty sophisticated setup. You had the director for the Cove out there. You had about five or six people. I mean, it was a very profound. I was like, wow, this is a pretty big deal. And this was at the early stages of the movie, too. They, had, they were just accumulating all the footage. I mean, after they filmed me, they told me in two days they were flying to Russia to meet up with some parkour people. Anyway, what they ended up with for the final product, I thought was the best variety. Maybe a few more women in there would have been good. And they even said that, you know, they had Tia Blanco, the surfer, who's super impressive, someone like that in there. But anyway, no movie can be perfect, right? There's always going to be, oh, we could have done this. We could have done that. You have 90 minutes to get to the point. And all the people they showed in there were very impressive. So I thought, I thought. The movie did a great job of also appealing to a, a more male type audience as well. I know obviously a lot of women in, are into fitness and strength training too, but most of the vegan movies are not really going to attract that market of people that are really into building muscle and getting stronger and so forth. But something like Game Changers, I think really, I think it has and will continue to. And I think that's an important step. Yeah, definitely. I, I I love the movie. I thought it was really awesome. And, um, you know, when I first found out about you actually was on the ritual podcast, I listened to uh, the episode oh, yeah, you sure. guys had done. Yeah. And um, I, I really love the work that you're getting into with like hormones and everything. Um, I just I, I, I want to start that conversation and, and just, uh, sure. you know, ask you, how did you get into all of this? And if you can kind of like, Tell people what hormones actually are, because we all kind of know what they are, but yeah. no, you know, not everybody really knows exactly yeah. what hormones are and um, common issues that people go in, uh, you know, run into. So if you can kind of um, get into your story here a little bit, yeah, uh, I, I love to learn more. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll start with what hormones are. They're biochemical messengers that have a strong influence on actions. So your sex drive is heavily correlated to your hormones. Your mood is heavily correlated to your hormones, your brain health, your heart health. So hormones have a tremendous impact on all facets of our health, just categorically across the board, way beyond just building muscle and having a better sex drive, way beyond that cardiovascular health, brain health, you name it, organ health. And I got into it around 2000, 2006, I believe, is the early stages of when I started getting into it. And at that time, I was mainly just a strength fitness person or a strength trainer, however you want to call it. I didn't do a lot of private training. I just taught kettlebell workshops all over the country and then eventually all over the world. So that was my main focus. And then I wrote a bunch of articles for a variety of magazines like T Nation and Men's Fitness and all of that. So mainly focused on the strength side of things, not so much on the nutrition side of things and certainly not on hormones. So anyway, I, I, I've dealt with depression my entire life. So I'm always focused on what are things that affect depression and what are things that can have a positive effect on improving mood. So anything that falls into those categories is something I'm interested in. So as I studied depression, there was a lot of research about the effect of your endocrinology and your mood. 
So optimal testosterone is not just important for physique composition goals, developing strength and so forth. It's also very important for both men and women because we both produce it. One of the misnomers is that you talk about testosterone, women automatically shut off. They think it's just a male discussion. And testosterone is just as important for women as it is for men, just as estrogen is just as important for men as it is for women. Men have estrogen too. And if we don't have optimal levels of estrogen, you have zero sex drive, zero sex function. It just shuts off. And there are people that take these AIs, right, aromatase inhibitors, these potent drugs, because sometimes they're Bodybuilders, for example, are on, on TRT or on different anabolics that, that convert a lot of testosterone to estrogen. So sometimes they take these AIs to block that conversion. They're very potent, though. So often it lowers estrogen too much. And then you have all of the negative effects of having really low testosterone. So it's a very delicate balance. It's not about taking one through the roof and lowering one. It's about creating – you have to look at hormones as an orchestra. And you want the orchestra to work like a symphony. So I, as I got into that, I realized, wow, this is pretty profound stuff. I, I had knew, known about hormones on a surface level in terms of their effect on physical performance, but I didn't necessarily think about the impact on mood and so many other facets, drive, mood, enthusiasm. A lot of these things are very heavily affected. And if you know any women that have really severe PMS symptoms, it can drive, it, it, it can, it's really tough for a lot of women who deal with that. And those are the hormonal messages they're getting that make them feel that way. It's not in their head. So when people say stuff such as, hey, just get over it, you know, so it's all in your mind. No, they're being programmed by their hormones to feel a certain way. And when you're programmed by your hormones to feel a certain way, it's impossible not to feel that way. You can try to rationalize. I mean, you know it's irrational. You're feeling a certain way, but it doesn't matter because that's the way you're feeling. So if you have a man who has, let's say he's had a, he's been in a car accident where he had a major brain concussion, that can hurt your pituitary gland, which can shut down your testosterone completely, meaning you're making zero. It's impossible to not be depressed when you're in that situation. Zero production of testosterone. There's no way you're going to feel good. Forget about sex drive. You're not even going to feel like getting out of bed in the morning. You're going to have no drive to get anything done. And the only solution when you have pituitary gland damage like that is testosterone replacement. So this is what Dr. Mark Gordon does with some of the soldiers. A lot of times soldiers have PTSD, not necessarily from what they have seen over there, but from what's happened to them over there, meaning that maybe they were in a battle and they had a major head concussion. There's a guy named Andrew Marr who runs Warrior Angels. He and Dr. Mark Gordon work together. So Andrew Marr is a special forces individual. He was, I think he served in Afghanistan. I want to say he served in Iraq as well. I'm not completely sure. But anyway, he's been in some serious action. And he came back from the last mission he ever did, and he was seriously depressed. And this is a very driven, motivated guy. He became an alcoholic. He had he was suicidal. And he he didn't know how to get out of anything. He didn't know how to get out of this this quagmire he was stuck in. So fortunately he came across Dr. Mark Gordon's work. Dr. Mark Gordon said you have all the symptoms of pituitary gland damage, traumatic brain injuries. They did the test. His testosterone was zero. Gave him a testosterone shot, just one shot. One shot, he felt 100% better immediately. All of a sudden, he started turning his life around. Now the guy looks great. He's healthy. He feels good. Now, I'm not saying that TRT is the solution for everyone, but in Andrew's case, it was 100% the solution. But it shows you how important hormones are for just feeling your best, operating at your best. You know, there's another master hormone called pregnenolone, which is very important for brain health. 
So if you have really depleted levels of this, you're gonna find that your memory is hazy and you're having a hard time focusing on things. And it's because of that one hormone. If you're, if you have, there's DHEA, which is the ultimate stress management hormone. So when you go through a lot of stressful periods, your cortisol goes through the roof and that just depletes your DHEA levels, your ability to manage excess cortisol. It's not so much that we're dealing with too much stress is that we don't have the coping mechanisms to handle that stress and thrive. That's often the case. So when your when your cortisol levels are through the roof, you may not necessarily even feel like you're stressed because you've acclimated to it. But the effect it's having on your body, your blood pressure is going way up. A lot of people walk around with high blood pressure and they don't know it. You know, they get tested and it's 180 over 120. And these are people that seem really calm because they've they've adapted to that. We're very highly adaptive mechanisms. So hormones have a profound effect, and I found that it. It just getting my I've never I've never had low, low testosterone. The first time I ever got my testosterone tested, I think I was 30. It was in the range. It was in the normal range. But like I said before, normal doesn't mean optimal. So you could be in the normal range and you don't feel that great. So each each man is going to have a number that is optimal for him. So for some men, they may need to have testosterone at the really high end to feel their best. For other men, they could be in the middle range and feel great. And going up higher doesn't necessarily have that much of an impact, but going lower does. So it, it's very individualistic. But I always tell people that, I always tell men in particular, that if you're even wondering if your levels are good, that's usually a sign that they're probably not that great. And you've just adapted to that. Because what happens with a lot of us is we these, these changes happen slowly this negative impact on hormones and, and it's multifaceted for a lot. A lot of it is diet related. Don't get me wrong, but it goes way beyond that. Such as like Johan Hari has this book on depression called lost connections. And he goes through the nine reasons for depression. And one of them is just having a job that is not fulfilling at all. You know, 87% of people hate their job, completely dissatisfied. So why would you have an optimal hormone profile when you hate your job? It's going to have a negative impact on your hormones. And then because your hormones are depleted, you don't have the thriving mechanisms to get out of that situation. So it becomes this catch 22. So it's like you need optimal hormones to take charge of your life and live fully. But you need to take charge of your life and live fully to improve your hormones. Right. So just as if a man has estrogen dominance, right, he's converting too much testosterone to estrogen. Generally, you have excess body fat, too. So you need to lose that excess body fat to lower your estrogen levels. but you also need to lower the estrogen to get rid of the excess body fat. Now, you don't have to necessarily do one or the other first, but you're going to find that if you're trying to lose body fat and your estrogen levels are very high, it's going to be a very difficult process. When you get your hormones dialed in, it facilitates that process of improving your physique composition, taking charge of your life. There are people that have had depleted hormones and you get them back to an optimal range. All of a sudden, they get out of negative relationships. They've been in a marriage that they where they can't stand the other person, but they just didn't have the energy to get out of it. So they just accepted it. You're watching five hours of TV every night. You know, you're on social media all day long, distracting yourself. And all of a sudden, now you have the thriving mechanisms via your endocrinology to say, wait a minute, I'm not happy with this life. And you're going to take charge of that. That's what got me to quit. The last job I ever had was in northern Virginia. I worked for an Internet company. This is back in 2002. And I worked for another internet company before that. I got laid off from that one. Then I got laid off by the second one, a company called Respond.com. You know, they're still out there. And I realized that, you know what? I'm never going to work for someone else again. And I'm never going to do something that is so unsatisfying. 
because I, I didn't feel any purpose doing this job. I didn't feel like I was improving anyone's life doing it. I didn't feel like I was making the world a better place. And these are very important things for us to feel. We need to feel that the work we're doing has some positive impact on improving the lives of others. Even if you don't think that, even if you think, I need to focus on myself first. It's like, well, you're gonna improve yourself by improving the lives of others. You know, for those of us that, I'm assuming you got into the vegan lifestyle, at least in part, because you love animals as well. Absolutely. And that was a big motivator for me. You know, so I, I had this, con I know I'm all over the place here. I'm trying to tie these different threads together. But, you know, I got into veganism because I always loved dogs and we had family pets. So it's, it, it felt very strange to me that we love some animals, but we're eating others. And if you've ever met pigs, they're very similar personality-wise to dogs. Even cows are too. They're playing around with balls. They're running around having a good time. There's a place called – there's a cow sanctuary in – actually in Florida. The uh, ISCWP so – I always get their International Cow Society. They're on Instagram. But anyway. Where is that? Where in Florida? It's it, – uh, I'm not sure exactly – I can look it up real quick as we're talking here because they're on. I'm just curious. I, I used oh, to yeah. live in Florida and I've heard of a yeah, I always, few. I always, uh, get their, always get their acronym wrong. Let me see. So I get it right. Okay. Yeah, I-S-C-O-W-P. And where are they based? Yeah, International Society for Cow Protection. That's their name. Yeah, I forget exactly where I don't see it listed on here. Yeah, but anyway, no they're, they're in Florida. They have, they have a lot of land. They used to be in West Virginia. Now they're in Florida. But when you look at the ways these cows interact with people, and sometimes there's there's clips of them running around with dogs and so forth, you start realizing that I, th I think it's 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 hard to rationalize why it's okay for us to love some animals, but eat others. And not only just eat others, but subject them to extreme suffering via factory farming and other methods where the majority of people's meat consumption, is not from people going out hunting, killing animals in their natural environment. You know, however you feel about that, that's way better than factory farming, which is just cruel. But a lot of people support that and even when they are exposed to the information, it bothers them, but they don't take any action on it. So you have to wonder, what's the effect of this on your subconscious mind? Because consciously, your ego may be defending it, saying, you know, I need this, or we're just going to have to accept this suffering happens, or I'm just going to block it out. I'm just going to pretend I don't know about it. <laughs> you know, that's a, but when you're exposed to this information, it's in your subconscious mind, whether you realize it or not. Now, there are some people who are like, look, I don't care about animal suffering. Right? I think animals are here for us to eat and help us thrive. And that's how we evolved as a species, blah, 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 blah. There's people who, who believe that and they say that. So it probably doesn't bother them one bit. You show them factory farm, they're like, eh, that's just a necessary evil for me to get what I need. But for a lot of people, it does bother them. They don't always take action on that, but it bothers them to the point where it's in their subconscious mind whether they realize it or not. And that could be one of the sources of depression is where I'm going with this. So when you have all these inconsistencies in your life, that's depressing. You know, you're strong in the gym and you take charge there. You're the alpha there. But then you go to a job that you hate and people are giving you crap all day long and you just take it. 
And then you rationalize it by saying, well, I'm, I'm just going to go work out and blow off some steam, get all that anger out in a positive way. And that'll allow me to cope with this lifestyle. When in, in reality, it would be better if you stopped working out so that you became so angry that you quit this line of work and, and got into something else. So we're very good at rationalizing. We like to be comfortable in anything that makes us uncomfortable. We try to avoid because if you let it in too long, you're going to have to start taking actions. And I became very uncomfortable with the idea that I'm supporting animal suffering because in my mind, I love animals, but a lot of people say they love animals, but they're talking about cats and dogs and whatever horses, whatever's considered a pet or a companion. Right. At the same time, they're eating cows, pigs, chickens, et cetera, in the same sentence. So I'm not comfortable with that inconsistency. So that's where this whole conversation in my mind started happening. That's where I started getting into vegetarianism. And then I was listening to a band, which I'm still a fan of, Chromex. I was going to say, I'm having John on tomorrow. Okay, cool. Yeah, cool. So there's, I mean, there's a lot of drama on the Chromex world. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I won't go on a segue with that. But let's just say when I got into the Chromex, John wasn't the singer. Harley was. He's the founder and the bassist. And then he took over vocal duties on the second record. Now, anyway, I read an interview with him and he talked about how much anger he had in his life and how much violence he'd been exposed to and that adopting a vegetarian diet helped him with calming himself down. And then he started thinking about all the animal suffering and he wrote a song called Death Camps about basically factory farms. So that got me thinking about this more so. My mother was a vegetarian and I always wondered why she was a vegetarian. So that was, I had a kind of an example of in her as well. So that was the first seed. This Cremex interview was the second seed. I went on a safari with my parents in Kenya. You're seeing all these animals in their natural environments. You're like, wow, this is how animals should be living, not in the zoo, not in a factory farm, not in, not being tested upon in a laboratory. You start, you start seeing kind of the interconnectedness of all life. So all of these things had a profound, all these different experiences had a profound effect on me at 15. And I decided, OK, I want to cut meat out. And I started by just cutting out everything except fish. So a pescatarian type vegetarian diet is what a lot of people like to call it. And that was what my mom recommended. She goes, because it's it's a pretty big change to just stop eating meat when you've been doing it for, at that time, 15 years of my life. So I ate fish and eggs, a little bit of dairy, but not every day. We grew up, I, my mother's from India, so we grew up with a lot of Indian food, which is heavy on vegetarian cuisine. So it's not something where any of these components have to be a part of it daily. But as I got exposed to more information, then I started getting exposed to what goes on at factory farming. And frankly, if you're someone who's cut out meat, but you still consume dairy, you're in some ways contributing to even more suffering because dairy is the worst. Dairy is probably the most cruel aspect of raising animals for food or for consumption. So as I got exposed to that, again, like you can't unsee this stuff. So I'm seeing what I'm supporting and I'm supposedly going down this path to be more compassionate, and but my actions are still supporting things that I have a problem with. So that's when I started phasing those things out. I didn't even know what a vegan was or what veganism was until I got to Lewis and Clark College, and I'm 20 years old at this point. This is 1994. And the act, this school was very progressive. It's in Oregon, Lewis and Clark College. And even in the school cafeteria, they had vegan options. And this was unheard of in most of America at that time. So they had almond milk and things like that in the school cafeteria. I was like, wow, I've never even heard of this stuff before. Awesome. So I started getting more into the message there and I realized, okay, this is the way I need to go. 
But at that time, I was also really into physical training. I was really into working out just like I am now, still strength training, et cetera. And I go, how am I going to make this diet work for what my needs are in terms of my hobbies? And I like to appear a certain way. I like to be, I like to feel strong. I like to feel healthy. And there wasn't any information at that time like there is now. Now there's so many good books. You have Robert Sheik has, has several books on how to thrive. Brendan Brazier. I mean, there's so many now. There's so many. Now there's movies like Game Changers. So if someone wants to adopt it now, there's ton of information that you can start from the get-go on a good path. But back then it was more figuring out what works. And also you have to give your body time to adapt to adapt to these different kinds of foods. So if you're not someone who's used to eating a lot of legumes, nuts and seeds, which I think are staples on a vegan diet if you want to be strong and feel vital. If you're not used to eating a lot of those foods, it's going to it's going to take your body a minute to adapt to it. It's going to be somewhat of a digestive stress initially. So you have to phase these things in gradually. And that's why for some people, a gradual approach is best because you're giving your body time to acclimate, to adopt. Now, I know people that have gone vegan overnight and they stayed vegan, but I know more people that tried doing that and they felt terrible and then they gave up when it's not the diet that made them feel terrible. It was their approach that made them feel terrible. It's just like someone who's never worked out before and we take him or her to the gym and we put them through some grinder of a workout. I mean, this is someone who's maybe never worked worked or hasn't worked that hard in 10 years. It's like, all right, we're going to go to the gym for two hours and just, just obliterate our body. How motivated is that person going to be <laughs> to come back when they're sore for three weeks? You know, they can't even get out of bed. They're just in pure pain. Now, a better approach would be, look, you've been inactive for a long time, so we're not even going to worry about strength training right now. You know what we're going to do? We're going to go walk for a mile every single day without fail. All right. You're going to be able to talk while you're doing it. You're not going to be wiped out. You're not going to need a day off from walking. We're going to start there and then we're going to build it up to two miles. So now you have a baseline of fitness. And now we're going to start throwing in some resistance training. It could be push ups. It could be some assisted pull ups, whatever it is. We're going to gradually build this person up so that they're motivated to stay along with it. They're, they're experiencing successes along the way. You know, mental health is the same way. Someone's depressed. You're not going to get that person out of depression unless it's an extreme event, such as what I mentioned with Andrew Marr, where it was his testosterone was zero. So that's clearly the cause of what the way he was feeling. So if you address that, he's going to feel automatically better. For most of us, if we're dealing with any kind of mood decline or we're just not we're having a hard time being happy and so forth, it's going to be more complex. Maybe you have childhood trauma you need to address. Maybe you have so many negative people in your life. It's just having a real profound negative effect on you. You can't stand your job. You know, these are all big things that need to be affected because if we just pop a pill, if I take a pill that makes me feel better, what's changed in a profound way? Really nothing. I'm still doing a job I hate. I'm still not, maybe I'm not physically healthy, so I don't feel good about myself. I'm still not confident in all that. So it's like, you're giving me something to make me feel better in spite of all these circumstances. But if we don't change the circumstances, then how are you going to feel better ultimately? You know, in the back of your mind, you're going to be, th- I don't, I don't want something that helps me cope with something I don't want to be doing. So if I have a job I hate, I'm not going to be thinking, okay, what can I take that's going to make me hate this job less? <laughs> you know, I'm going to be thinking, what can I do to get out of this situation? Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's just a cover up, t- a popping in a pill, but you're not going for that underlying cause. And a lot of people that do come to my channel and the podcast are very influenced by making dietary changes. And you mentioned right. diet is a big part of hormone balance. Um, can oh, you talk is. a little bit about that? Like, the, like maybe the benefits of plant-based diet and maybe 
how certain foods like, I, I guess, supposedly soy or dairy can affect yeah. estrogen, for example. Yeah, sure. First, I'll squash that soy argument because that one comes. I mean, that's still just it's like a broken record that just keeps repeating itself. OK, soy has phytoestrogens. Phytoestrogens are chemically similar to real estrogens, but have one ten thousandth the power of the real thing. One ten thousandth the power. So you're not going to grow a pair of hooters from eating too much soy. You're not going to have estrogen dominance from eating too much soy. Now, I'm not saying that you should have that soy should be an integral part of your diet. You should have way more variety than that. But you also don't have to have this paranoia over, oh, I'm going to destroy my testosterone levels. All of that, it's not even research, but all of that, that narrative came from one study of one 19-year-old male who decided to become a vegan and ate essentially a 100% soy-based diet. And this guy developed some problems. Wow, what a what a epiphany that is. He developed some problems eating one food source you know, right. in overabundance. Big surprise. <laughs> and now we're trying to say, okay, if that happened to him, then anyone who eats soy in any quantity is going to have to worry about it. And that's just not the case. There's a doctor named Dr. Eugene Shippen. And again, no vegan bias. He's just a regular guy. He used to give his TRT patients soy to block the conversion of testosterone to estrogen because the phytoestrogens dock in estrogen receptors. They actually go dock in there, and now the stronger estrogens can't get picked up because it's blocking it. It's blocking the receptor uptake. So if anything, phytoestrogens are going to improve the balance of testosterone to estrogen. So now with a vegan diet, in terms of here, one of the benefits of a vegan diet is because of what you're not consuming. There are so many pesticides and toxins in the food we eat and none are more concentrated in these chemicals than meat for a variety of reasons. One, animals have to be loaded up with antibiotics to just keep them alive long enough to kill them. I mean, look at where they're, look at the conditions they're trying to survive in long enough to be killed, to be put in meat. If you go to a factory farm, it's a horror, it's a horrible situation. And then they're not given the highest quality food either. They're given the lowest quality food, which is not even their natural diet. A lot of that is grown with pesticides and so forth. So let me just pull up this article real quick because I want to give some real data. And this is on my website too, MikeMahler.com. But I have this article on toxins in the food we eat. So I just want to pull some of this up because there are some vegetables and fruits that are problematic as well. So I want to address that and also what you can do to avoid having any issues there. Yeah, I so want to know all of that. Like I want to know like what you yeah. recommend. For yeah, we're going to get into that. Yeah, perfect, perfect. Definitely going to get into that. And I have a lecture on my podcast addressing this too. So for people, this is going to be a lot of information to take in. Okay. So anyway, the article is called The Negative Impact on Toxins on Hormone Balance and Production. So just – I'm not going to read every point here because there's a lot, but just a few I'll, key points. I'll link it down okay, below too. 50, oh, yeah, sure. 15 trillion pounds of chemicals are made, are made or imported into the U.S. every year. Now let that sink in. 15 trillion pounds of chemicals. You know, the FDA has registered 80,000 chemicals in use, and we only have tests for 250 of them. So we live in an extremely toxic environment. It's, it's virtually impossible to avoid exposure to all of this. So we have to do the best we can with what we can do. 400 chemical contaminants have been found in human fat. And the, the most demoralizing or disheartening is out of all the pesticides, only 1% of pesticides even make it to the crop to protect from insects. 
So it's not even having that much of a positive effect. Americans use 4.5 billion pounds of pesticides yearly. And on a daily basis, we're exposed to toxins, pesticides via car exhaust. So if you live in a city, you're constantly breathing in car exhaust, even if you don't. Everywhere you go, there's cars, right? You know, where if you're so if you're walking around and there's cars driving by, which is pretty much everywhere I know of, except for national parks and so forth, you're breathing in chemicals from this exhaust. Carpets. Okay, if you have if you own your house, you want to get rid of all the carpets. Brand new carpets have even more toxins. So hardwood floors, marble, that's what you want to do because a lot of these toxins not only come from carpets, but stay in carpets. Industrial solvents, plasticizers, paints, you know, people put on fresh paint on their house. Now they're breathing in all these toxins. Air fresheners. How many people use air fresheners in the bathroom all over their house? Again, right. it's going right into the air. Household cleaning products. There's a lot of natural household cleaning products. So those are worth investing in because otherwise it's just one more source of contaminants you're taking in. So let me just scroll down a little bit here. All these points are on here. A lot of canned foods have bisphenol A, BPA. So if you get legumes in a can like I do, you can get BPA free. I mean, ideally, you just buy raw legumes and you put it in a pressure cooker. But I'm going to be honest, that that's a process. You know, it mm -hmm. takes a while. Yeah. Uh, is it cheaper? Absolutely. If you have yeah. a family of five, you should definitely do that. Someone like me, I'm... I don't, it's not so much I don't have the time to do that. I don't really have the desire. So I'm right. going to invest in high quality canned products that are BPA free and avoid it that way. So that's I'm just guilty something. of it's, it as well. <laughs> none, of these, none of these things are expensive, but can of garbanzo beans, which is one of my favorite legumes. I mean, it's 99 cents. All right. right. You know, I'm not breaking. I'm, I'm not seeing my savings account depleted because of all the vegetarian food I'm buying, which is which I'll address as well. If you're like, oh, man, that vegan food is so expensive. I go, some of the processed stuff is, but that's not what I recommend. I recommend legumes, nuts and seeds, fruits and vegetables. That should be the largest base of your diet. Things like oatmeal are great too, sweet potatoes and so forth. But you can't beat legumes, nuts and seeds because they're very high in micronutrients as well as the macronutrients we need. But a lot of the processed food, it's high in macronutrients, meaning protein, carbohydrates and fat. At mainly carbohydrates, but it's low in micronutrients. So the more food you eat that's high in micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, polyphenols, the less food you actually need to eat to feel content. I mean, people are surprised that, I mean, I, I eat a pretty big dinner, but I don't eat a lot during the day. And for a guy my size and my activity level, I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear what my total caloric intake is. It's probably, I mean, I don't think it's more than 2,500 calories. It might even be lower than that. And I'm a very active person. I have a good amount of muscle mass because the food I do eat, all the things I just mentioned, is very high in actual nutrition. Just because you're eating something doesn't mean you're getting nutrition. You go to McDonald's and you get a burger and fries. You got a bunch of calories. You got some macros. You didn't get any micros, though. You didn't get nutrition, which is why you're hungry 20 minutes later. You're not nourishing yourself. And this is one of the reasons why we have this obesity epidemic is because the majority of what people are consuming is not even real food. It's artificial food. It's overly processed food. It's devoid of nutrients. So your body's never getting what it needs. And on top of that, you're exposing yourself to all these toxins I'm mentioning here. So let's let's get down to... Let's get down to the actual pesticides and food. 
Just one quick point actually about people that are overweight. So if you're overweight and suffer from the following, you have a toxic burden, allergies. Think about how many people you know have allergies, asthma. More and more people are dealing with asthma. Autoimmune diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis and Hashimoto's disease. And rheumatoid, rheumatoid arthritis is a autoimmune disorder because it's, it's your body attacking healthy tissue, essentially. It's not like osteoarthritis, which is from wear and tear. Like I've got some arthritis in my elbows and elsewhere from just years and years of heavy weight training, but it's not from my immune system attacking itself. It's just wear and tear. So that's the big difference there. Rheumatoid arthritis is a really serious condition though. I mean, people who have it, it's, it's really hard to manage. Okay. Sensitivity to chemicals, constant fatigue. Think about how many people are just tired all the time. You know, how many people do you know that just wake up, they're energetic and ready to go without several cups of coffee? Some people, some people have their, their coffee on a timer so that the second they get up and go downstairs or to the kitchen, it's ready. So because true. they can't function without that cup. I mean, they can't do anything without that first cup of coffee. Now, I love coffee. I drink a cup of coffee every day, but it's not the first thing I drink. I have a cup of green tea which is great for clearing out chemicals and giving your body a lot of nutrients. Then I have my morning protein smoothie, which has a lot of fruits and vegetables and spices and protein powder and nuts and seeds. So I, I'm liquefying this meal to make it easily digestible early in the morning when you're just getting your day going. And then after all of that, I have my first cup of coffee. So it's not something, I'm not even thinking about coffee first thing in the morning. I'm energy from having a quality night of sleep. And that's where we want to, that's an important point, point of hormone optimization as well. So catch colds and flus often. That's a lot of people too. I know people that are sick all the time. My dad is sick probably you know, half the year and his house, my parents' house is just full. I mean, that's a, that's a toxic burden. He could be on that TV show hoarders. <laughs> Diabetes, fibromyalgia, infertility, Parkinson's symptoms. These are all heavily affected by all right, now let's get into the leading sources of chlorinated pesticides, right? This is a lot of what's in food. But guess what kind of food? The top four sources, non-organic beef, non-organic dairy, farm-raised fish, non-organic butter. Now, we can say that the organic versions of all of these is going to be a lot better, and that's definitely true. But how many people are consuming that? Most of what you see at the grocery store is not organic. And even when it says it's organic, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's 100% organic. It, it could be partially organic. So you're still getting exposed to all these things. Right. So is organic better? Yeah. Is not taking in – is organic better than non-organic? Sure. Is avoiding both completely better than that? Yeah, I think so because I don't want all these chlorinated pesticides because these wreak havoc on your hormone right. system. I mean you're going to have more estrogen-type chemicals in your body which have a very negative impact on testosterone and hormone balance as well as – destroying leptin sensitivity and leptin is the most important hormone for fat loss as well as overall hormone optimization because leptin is a master control hormone that regulates energy expenditure so when your leptin is sensitive not making too much or too not too high or too low just sensitive just like insulin sensitivity we want sensitivity so we only need to produce a small amount so we avoid any kind of inflammatory response to very high insulin levels then your body's in a thriving state. So when leptin is set right, it's like the fuel gauge in our car. We know exactly when to fill up and we know exactly when to stop so we don't have nutrient spillover, which is just a fancy way of stating eating way more than you need and the excess going into stored body fat. All right, now 
Here's some issues with fruits and vegetables, but this one is easily avoided. Okay, top 12 fruits and vegetables highest in pesticides. Now, you want to make sure you get organic for everything I'm about to mention. Apples, bell peppers, carrots, celery, cherries, grapes, kale, lettuce, nectarines, peaches, pears, strawberries. These are the top 12 fruits and vegetables highest in pesticides. So this is worth spending a few extra dollars and not only is it better for you, the organic versions of every fruit I've ever had are de definitely taste better. Now, better than organic at Whole Foods or somewhere like that would be if you could go to a farmer's market or as close to where you live, right? So that so that there's there's even a farmer's market in Vegas where some of the stuff is actually grown locally. A lot of it people drive in from the edges of California and Nevada, the border. That's the ideal situation because the longer something is in transportation, the less nutrients it's going to have by the time it gets to you. So that's just something to keep in mind. And it's going to be way cheaper too. So if you get fruits and vegetables from a farmer's market, you can load up, put it in your freezer. That's going to be way cheaper cheaper and healthier. So that's just win-win all around. Now, the top 12 fruits and veggies lowest in pesticides. So this is where organic doesn't matter as much. we got asparagus, avocado, cabbage, eggplant, kiwis. Mangoes, onions, papayas, pineapple, sweet corn, sweet peas, and watermelon. Now, all of these have a protective shell. So an avocado has a very protective shell. It doesn't matter as much if it's organic because it's not going to penetrate that. But an interesting point about avocados is that avocados have, have become a huge business in America and the developed world. Now, what few Americans know is that a lot of the avocados are coming from Mexico. But they're not just coming from Mexico. They're coming from Mexico, Mexican cartels, meaning the Mexican mafia has gotten in on this business because it's such a lucrative sector that they're in on it. Now, I don't want to support anything they do. They do human trafficking and drugs and all that stuff. So it's worth getting avocados from a locally sourced place or even – there's a place on there's a there's a company on Instagram. Rossi Ranch is the name. If you if you just type in Rossi R O S S I Ranch, this is a local farm, not a local farmer, but a farmer in San Diego who grows his own avocados. Pretty sure they're organic, but if if not, again, avocados are not. They don't they're not negatively affected the way some other fruits and vegetables are. But anyway, you know you're supporting a local farmer. You know you're not supporting the Mexican mafia and these avocados are way more delicious than any avocado I've ever tried. It has this real buttery type, strong right. flavor to it. You know, the avocados you get at the store, are not, are not gonna, they're not even comparable. I mean, it doesn't even taste like the same product. So you can order from him. I believe he ships anywhere in the U.S. It's fairly expensive, but, you know, you get what you pay for, as the saying says. His, his are way better. And you're supporting a guy's business a good job. That is so interesting what you just said about the cartel and avocados. I've never heard of that, but certainly wouldn't want to, to promote that. You think something like that could end up in one of these like local supermarkets here in America as well? Oh, yeah, it, it all does. Yeah. So when you go to a Whole Foods and it says from Mexico, it's 90 percent chance it's coming from one of those kind of conglomerates. I mean, there's there are documentaries on YouTube. Forget about the Mexican cartel. Just the environmental devastation of growing massive amounts of avocados because avocados are very water intensive. So in some poor parts of South America, they're siphoning away water from all of these villagers to use to grow avocados to send over here to the U.S. Oh, wow. So you're also supporting that. 
So this goes back to consistencies, right? Like I got into veganism because I don't want to hurt animals. Well, I don't want to hurt people either, <laughs> you know? So Definitely. I don't want to buy avocados that are screwing over people in South America and taking their water supply away or maybe their way of living away either. Now, it's impossible to, you know, it's impossible to have a 100% cruelty-free lifestyle. What I mean by that is, Everything we're going to do is going to have a negative impact somewhere. Like I'm talking to you on a computer, which has components from mines in Africa where child slavery is probably used. Right. But all you can do is when you know about this, what can I do to change now that I know? Okay. I can't worry about what I've supported in the past. It's like now that I know, let me find a healthier option. And the more people who do this, consumers have all the power. So if consumers decide this is unacceptable, I don't want to support this anymore, then companies have to follow suit. You know, all these companies that are offering vegan options and cruelty-free cosmetics and all that, most of them are not doing it from the goodness of their hearts. They're doing it because not doing it was affecting their bottom line. And we live in a capitalist country, so we have to realize that the reality is, is that companies make changes when their bottom line is affected. Yeah. And more and more companies now have an ethical component, newer companies, and that's great. But for the most part, companies are not going to make big changes in their product line until consumers demand it. So the more aware and educated the consumers are, the more they can demand what we want in the marketplace. And that's where profound changes come. I mean, again, I've been doing this vegan thing for 26 years now, and the changes I've seen are incredible. Now things – forget about just – more people adopting it, but there's so many more options now. I mean, it used to be when I would go to a restaurant, there was nothing on the menu. I had to, I had to get restaurants to create meals for me 90% of the time. I would be like, well, you know, just give me these four side orders on a plate, you know, it'd be something like that. And most of the time they were really cool. I, I would say pretty much all the time they were really cool about it, but there wasn't anything on the menu. Now, just about every restaurant has at least something, right? There's a veggie burger or there's something on there. They're, they're acknowledging that there's potential vegan consumers coming in. So sometimes there's a vegan section. Sometimes it's only a few things, but at least it's actually there. That's a change in the marketplace because of consumer demand. If people weren't coming in and asking for these things, do you think they're just going to say, oh, yeah, this vegan thing sounds cool. I mean, let's add it to the menu. No, it's because it affects their bottom line for the most part. All right. Now, plastics is another thing that we're exposed to. So there's, I have a list of all the plastics on here that are least toxic, the ones that are most toxic. A lot of difficult things to pronounce there, so I won't bore the audience with all of that. You can take a look here. But I also get into action steps to avoid it, as well as recommended reading. There's a book called From Clean, Green, and Lean, by Dr. Walter Crinian, I think is how you pronounce it. And then Suzanne Summers, Toxic from Toxic to Not Sick. That's also really good. And what's interesting is Suzanne Summers puts out a lot of good information on hormone optimization, no doubt about it. But in this book, Toxic from Toxic to Not Sick, which is a very good book, what's interesting though is she interviews Dr. Walter Crinian in there. And she talks about how, hey, is it a good idea to get meat that is organic and so forth. He's like, yeah, that's better. But an even better idea is just to cut it out completely. And she didn't really know where to go with that because again, she was probably hoping that he would say, oh yeah, 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 yeah. You can definitely negate all the negatives of meat if you do that. But he didn't say that. And I'm not sure if he's vegan or not, but he's a guy who says most of your diet should be plant-based, right? He's one of those kind of proponents. I'm pretty, I don't know what his personal diet is, 
but he's a very well-researched guy and he's conveying this information based on the research and having treated tons of patients with this kind of thing. So, I mean, some of the action steps, eat organic food whenever possible. Local organic is ideal. I mentioned that already. Now, if you eat meat, only eat organic meat from healthy animals without exception. It's like, okay. I mean, I wrote that, but how many healthy animals are out there you know, being killed for meat consumption, right? right. The ideal is we, we have this idyllic notion of a, a family farm with cows grazing in the sun. And then one day they're killed humanely, and that's where we get our meat from. That's not the reality. And even if it is the reality, what's humane about killing an animal unnecessarily? Is it, it's not the same as putting a, a dog down that's near the end and he or she is really suffering. So we, we do the humane thing to put the animal out of its misery. A, a healthy animal with years to live being killed, there's definitely different levels of, of killing that are very painful and cruel on the spectrum. And then there's ways that are probably much less cruel, but you're still contributing to an act of killing. And you have to ask yourself if you're okay with that. That's what each person has to decide. Would you be okay with that doing that personally is another question. So in other words, you may think, you know what, I, I don't want to do it, but I don't mind paying someone else to do it. So, I, so I'm not involved in that. Okay. But what if you had to do it every day? What if every day you wanted to eat chicken, you had to go in the backyard and psh, chop off a chicken's head? Some people would be fine with that. They're like, no, I don't care. And these, okay, fine. So you're consistent with whatever your ideology is. A lot of people wouldn't be okay with it, but a lot of people still support it, even though they know what goes on. And that's right. a problem. That, that's going to be a problem for your mental health, whether you realize it or not. I think on a subconscious level, it's affecting you. Just like when we're exposed to all the suffering in the world. You watch the news, right? You see all the suffering. You see what's going on in Australia right now with the wildfires and so forth. It's hard not to just be disheartened by that on multiple levels. The one is like, what can I do to change? And what if anything I'm doing is even going to have an impact? I can donate money. I can try to throw time at it. Is it, it going to have? That's healthier, even if that feels futile. At least that's a proactive action step, as opposed to, well, let me just shut this off and just pretend it's not going on. And I think a lot of people just shut things off, and that's really unhealthy for you. So you're naturally going to be depressed when you're just promulgated with all of this and feel helpless to do anything about it. Right. Yeah. You have to align your actions with your beliefs. And I feel like a lot of people maybe unintentionally are not doing that because right. nobody, not, you know, not everyone is going to go, like you said, in their backyard and kill their chicken if they want to eat chicken. I think we would have a lot more vegans right. if they had to do that, <laughs> if they had to hunt themselves or slaughter right. themselves, um, more people would choose not to and would just eat plants instead. Right. And then some of the counter arguments are like, well, you know, land is utilized to grow vegetarian food and that displaces animals and so forth. It's like, look, nothing is foolproof, right? Like everything we're going to do is going to have some negative consequences, but we have to look at degrees. You can't tell me that my legume consumption harms more animals than someone who supports factory farming. You know, that's totally nonsensical. And also you have to realize that most of that land is being utilized to grow crops for those factory farmed animals, not for human consumption. Because there's... There's billions of animals that are killed every year for human consumption. There's 300 million people in America. Out of that 300 million, probably not even 1% is 100% plant-based. So it's, it's ridiculous to say that the 1% of people that are 100% plant-based are causing all of this environmental damage when it's the 
of people that can see that are supporting factory farming and a lot of other things. I mean, you have to look at, you, yeah. have, you just have to, I mean, if you don't want to do something fun, but don't give me all these nonsensical reasons for why you're not doing it. Like you're trying to tell me it's like, Oh, you're hurting more. Yeah. You're hurting more animals as a vegan than a meat eater does. You know, things like that are just ridiculous. Right. So just, if you don't want to do it, great, don't do it. But so try to, it's almost like uh, someone who is, who is jealous or envious where some, some degree of jealousy is you want what the other person has, right? The next degree of jealousy, which is even more self-sabotaging is not only do you want what the other person has, you don't want them to have it. It's like, they shouldn't have it because I don't have it. I want what they have, but I don't want them to have it. I mean, think about that's that's an extremely unhealthy way to look at life. Just jealousy is unhealthy. It's a wasted emotion, but there's degrees of it that are worse. Okay, so make sure coffee is organic and reverse osmosis water. Water is a big one because you can buy this device called a TDS device. It's total dissolved solids. And you can just put this in water and it tells you the amount of properties in the water. So it doesn't give you a breakdown of what the solids consist of. But these are solids that are not visible to the eye but that are in the water. And you have to realize that all the antidepressants people take, all the birth control pills, all the medications, that all wakes, makes its way into the water supply. So if you're not filtering it out in some very effective way, you're consuming these things in trace amounts, but it's going to accumulate over time. So when you use something like reverse osmosis or distilled water, you're lowering the amount of total dissolved solids significantly because tap water in Las Vegas, for example, it's in the red zone, meaning that it's not healthy to consume. It's not healthy to drink. You can use something like a reverse osmosis. That gets that number in the green zone. It gets it anywhere from 30, zero to 30. A distiller gets it down to one or so. It doesn't have to be that low, but you want to be in the green zone. So water is an obvious one. And a lot of us drink water out of plastic now. And even though the water is coming out of a plastic container, a lot of those are actually in the green zone too. But I don't want to contribute to all the plastic in the landfills. So I try to avoid that because that has a negative impact on the environment, which is going to come back and have a negative impact on the individual. You know, it's it's interesting to think that why would what we do as a society – have a negative impact on society collectively, but somehow not have a negative impact on you as an individual. So what we all do collectively, not just hurts all of us, it hurts our, not not only does it hurt just us, it hurts everyone. So we all have a responsibility to try to be as informed as possible and look at what can I do that's gonna at least cause the very least damage in the health of others rather than, okay, I'm going to take these actions, which may help me. It's going to screw over a lot of other people, but I can't worry about that. In that book, Lifting Depression, Johan Hari makes a point of, they did a study with people in the US, in Asia, and Russia, a few other countries, maybe some other European countries as well. But anyway, they showed a picture of a child, eight children, one child in the middle. The one child in the middle is smiling, appears happy. The rest of the kids are not. They look like they're depressed or unhappy, sad. Now, in America, they go, okay, when you look at the kid in the middle, does the, ha- does the kid look happy or sad? And Americans said happy. While in other countries, they said sad. And they asked them why. They go, because there's no way this kid could possibly be happy with all of the sadness around him. So it's just a different mindset, right? It's more of a collective mindset. And I think one of the reasons why people are so depressed in America is that people are very lonely. The average person doesn't even, has reported that they don't even have one close friend. 
you know, 20 years ago, people would say they have at least three close friends. Since 2004, people report, I don't have one close friend. And that's not hard to believe because most of what people call friends are acquaintances at best. There are people who are superficial. Hey, how you doing? I'm great. Oh, how you doing? Good. Oh, you see the game last night? Yeah, that was cool. And that was it. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing deeper. So, so how are we going to be happy as individuals when we're surrounded by so many people that are not happy? That we, we are a social species. So we can't just be happy individually when as a society, we're not happy. It's just not possible. But we just don't have that. We're such an individualistic society, though, that that's what we see. We look at a picture of eight kids, one smiling. We don't even think about the other eight kids, how that's affecting the one, because we're so focused on being an individual. While in other countries where it's a little bit more of a group society type thing, if you live in a village and one person's depressed, the whole village is going to come around and support that person, as opposed to, well, Hope he gets better, <laughs> you know, just move on with your day. So I think that's where our society really needs to move. And I think that addiction to television, addiction to social media, in a lot of ways has made this worse because now people aren't making as many real world connections because they're so addicted to their phones. I mean, look at, go walking around. I go to concerts all the time, right? We were talking about that at the beginning. You, right. you know how many people are actually watching the concert versus looking at or filming it through their phone? Dude. That pisses me off so much. Yeah. yeah, it's like you're here for the art, aren't you? Like, get off your phone. What are you doing? And certain uh, points, I remember the artists would actually call out the crowd. They're like, what are you guys doing here? Are you guys like even in, into the show? Like, get out of here. Yeah, Harley of the Cremex told me that he did a show in Europe somewhere. And he noticed that a lot of people were on their phones. And he goes, hey, let's do an experiment tonight. Everyone put their phones away. Move up closer to the stage. And he said people did that right. and everyone had a blast. The only negative is they didn't have any footage to post of the concert on Instagram because <laughs> there wasn't any footage. You know? And I go, that's right. actually a positive yeah. thing. It's like, can you do a concert where no one takes any footage? Right. That to me is a sign of success. Yeah. What are you going to do with that footage? You're going to go home later and watch it. You're here now. You know? <laughs> right. It's like, what's the point? And it's funny. You, you mentioned social media, but like the more social media that, you know, people embrace the less social people actually get it's right. funny that it works that way or, or you're or you're you're trying to accumulate experiences with the, the a really flawed intention meaning okay i'm going to go to fremont street tonight in vegas and i'm going to do the zip line because it looks fun but i'm not going to just do it i'm going to have someone film me doing it so i can post it on social media later and show people what an exciting life i have why can't i get just go do that all on its own why do I have to document it anyway? And if I do document, maybe you take a couple pictures for yourself. Why do I have to post that somewhere? So I think a yeah. lot of it is, is yeah. people are unhappy and what they're looking for is false validation. So I'm going to go post what looks like moments of happiness. Here's me at the pool with the cocktail and my girlfriend having a great time. And then other people are going to be like, oh, wow, jealous. Oh, you guys look great. Oh, well, you're having fun. Oh, I wish I was doing that. It's, it's really unhealthy. So we're talking about toxins in the environment. You have to realize there's junk food for the mind as well. So not only are we on a junk food diet, we're on a, a, a junk food consumption of just con overly consuming entertainment, distracting ourselves essentially. I mean, Netflix is made to be binge, is, is made to be binged, right? Because if you watch the TV show, let's say you're watching I don't know. What's a hot show right now? Something that is 
a new series on Netflix, right? I can't even think of one because I don't watch it that often. You know? But let's say whatever's hot right now. I, I was I was going to say Breaking Bad, but that show ended a long time ago. That's how much I think of television. Yeah. But let's just say Breaking Bad came out and people start binge watching it. Is it a good show? Yeah, it's a good show. But is spending five hours in a row watching it the best use of your time? Is it going to have any meaningful impact on improving the quality of your life in any way? And the answer is no. You're not even going to remember doing it the next day or certainly not the next week. No one's going to be like, hey, Mike, what TV show did you watch last Wednesday at 8? I'm not going to bother. Even if I, if I watch something, I'm not going to be able to remember what it was. A lot of times we don't even remember what happened on a show. That's why they have to do the recap you know, at the beginning of every episode yeah. <laughs> because we're watching so many shows. We have to get the recap because otherwise we're watching the show. We go, huh, what, what's happening in this show? Yeah, I don't remember. No, you're getting it all up front. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> But let, let me ask you this. Let me let me ask. Sure. Yeah. Go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. I was just gonna say. Um. Let me ask you a personal question. Then, how about like, I would consider myself a pretty motivated person. Yeah. Um. I used to be that way, right? I used to spend lots of hours watching TV. Sort of switch my mentality where I'm like, all right, let me just focus on this YouTube and podcast thing because I feel like I'm helping a lot of people right. and I want to do a lot of good. But on a personal level, and I think this is something that I don't really portray like this is not something a lot of people see but i'm spending lots of hours into this and like i I work a nine to five job my commute believe it or not is two hours one way so i'm spending about three to four hours driving every single day uh i come back home i'm either filming i'm doing interviews and conversations like this i'm you know filming other videos editing and all that is is really stressful. And I feel like, um, you know, it, I, I have so much to give and take, you know, I'm taking from my sleep, I'm taking from my free time. Like, how does somebody, and I'm sure I'm not alone, how does somebody who's like really motivated and passionate in that regard of their life, and they're putting everything they are into their work and their love in it, how can they also get into maybe a trap of maybe spiking their cortisol? Or what can they do to kind of, um, I guess, live a more balanced lifestyle. Yeah, I, I don't think it's possible to, to be really productive and be balanced at the same time. You know, people that are extremely productive, they're always imbalanced, right? So I think that's the first step. And I think when you're trying to achieve something that is impressive, it's going to take being in a state of being imbalanced, whether it's a physical goal, a business goal, whatever it is. That those are just realities. But here's the thing. This all this work you're doing for this show, right? So this is not your day job. You have a day job that pays the bills. This is something you're doing. You're choosing to do this in your free time. You don't have to. I'm assuming your day job pays all the bills and this show, whatever money you're making from it is probably just icing on the cake, but that's not the main motivation. It's what I'm getting. You want to put out real content that's going to help people. So while it is stressful, in your own words, you said it's stressful because it requires a good amount of work, but it's work you want to do. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. You would get home from that two-hour commute and just kick your feet up and say, all right, I'm going to watch some shows. I'm going to hang out with friends. I'm going to go do something fun. I'm not going to come home and spend my whole night making more content for other people to consume and so forth. So the reason why you're doing it is because you really enjoy doing it. So there's there's always – I always say the, always say the difference between – you know that old saying that says, oh, when you, when you love what you do, you're never going to work a day in your life? That's not true, all right? Your work is work. You know, my business requires – I like what I do too. But it's work. I don't have any illusions about that. The difference is, though, it's work I actually want to do. It's not work where I'm like, oh, God, I got to do that today. 
Is it still stressful? Yeah, sure. Anytime we try to make something happen, our cortisol levels go up. Look, just driving over to the gym for an intense workout, your cortisol levels are going to go up. Because, and that's actually a good thing because cortisol is actually a motivating hormone as well. You want your cortisol high in the morning because that's what gets you out of bed, gets your day going. But you want it low in the evening so that you can sleep and get restored and come back up. Now, a lot of people have adrenal issues. So when they wake up, their cortisol level is flatlined. It's low. And it's low all day long. And then finally in the evening, it kicks in and it kicks in hard. And now you're trying to go to sleep in two hours and you can't because your cortisol levels are through the roof. And because of that, you have a really poor night of sleep. And now you wake up depleted the next day and you're stuck in this vicious cycle. So you got to flip-flop that. And that's where things like supplements can help. Like on Rich Roll's podcast, I think I mentioned licorice can help with people in that situation. Now, remember, you have to determine that you actually have low morning cortisol. You can do a saliva test. But for the most part, you're going to be able to feel this. You wake up tired every day. You know you have low morning cortisol. You need caffeine. Taking caffeine to get through the day is like your car battery is dead and you have to jump it every morning. What you need is a new battery. Right. So you have to recharge your battery so that whenever you want to turn your car on, it's ready to go. I mean, imagine if you have a battery that's so depleted that every morning you have to have someone come over and jump it for you. You know, and then once you get in motion, you're able to stay in motion. You know, if you're at a stop sign for too long, maybe that battery's going to go out. You turn the car off too soon. The battery's not going to start again. That's the reality for a lot of people. And that's why they keep taking those coffee hits. I mean, the average coffee drinker I know, they don't just have a cup in the morning like I do. They have a pot in the morning. You know, they might have another pot in the afternoon. <laughs> and then they add a lot of sugar to right. it, which is going to drive a cortisol yeah. even more and cause insulin resistance. Now you're stuck in this vicious cycle. So anyway, but back to you, I think what's going on is, 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 the job, is your day job something you enjoy? Is it satisfying to you? Yeah, I would say so. Um, it's definitely the best job I've ever had. Uh, I just wish it was a little closer. And, you know, the the, the commute, it just it, it makes sense financially yeah. right now. But maybe in the future, it's something I can eliminate. Yeah, it's a tough commute. You know, two hours each way is a long commute. But you actually like what yeah. you're doing. So that's good. So that's not a stress. So in other words, where I'm trying to go is you're not you're not doing this to overcompensate for your day job where you're going, I hate what I do for my day job. So let me go home and get into something more creative and more interesting to me to balance that out. So I, I think that there's different kinds of stress. Stress doing something you enjoy doing is a lot different than stress doing something you hate doing in terms of the impact it's going to have on your mood and so forth. So I think there's probably a level okay. of deep satisfaction too when you record an episode and you get it out there and you're getting positive feedback or you're getting feedback at all. Just people are actually paying attention. That's got to be invigorating on some level. Otherwise, you're, you're just not going to keep doing it. So I, that's not the kind of stress I would be worried about. The kind of stress I would be worried about is unresolved childhood traumas, which a lot of people have. And honestly, therapy is very useful for that. And I'm saying that from research. I haven't actually gone to therapy myself, but it's actually something I want to do because I've got things that I can work on too. And I've, I feel like Ed, I've, taken it, I've taken my mental health as far as I can with my knowledge base in terms of understanding endocrinology, understanding the benefits of exercise and spending time in nature and fresh air and surrounding myself with really positive, motivated people. You know, I do all those things, but I still deal with depression often. I mean, last year I went through a couple of bouts of depression where I really had to motivate myself to stay on course. And it's not fun when people, people who've never dealt with depression, when you deal with depression, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard just depending on this, on the severity of it. 
Some people are so depressed they can't even get up in the morning. They're just – they go through long periods of time where they can't enjoy anything. Um, and that's why some people become suicidal over time. They just keep dealing with this. And a lot of the celebrities we hear that commit suicide, like Chester of Lincoln Park, people automatically think, why would that guy think commit suicide? He's in this this band and he's performing in these audiences that love him. And he, I've seen Lincoln Park several times, as well as Chester with Stone Temple Pilots, as, as well as Chester with Kings of Chaos, which was this basically – all these different rockers and a variety of bands coming together and doing cover songs. And he looked extremely happy to me up on stage, but your life is not just on stage. What about all the other hours where you're not on stage? So I think, I think he was doing a lot of the right things. He was going to therapy. He, he loves what he does for a living. He was going to therapy. He, he was talking openly about his challenges yet still he committed suicide, even though doing everything right. And that can be disheartening to anyone who's dealing with depression. Now, imagine someone who's dealing with depression who has no positive people in his or her life, has a job they can't stand to get no satisfaction from. Imagine that person looking at Chester and going, well, man, if, if he can't even pull it together, then what hope do I have? Yeah. And I think the, the problem is, is that you rely too much on extrinsic things to try to cope with this happiness. It goes back to what we we're talking about before. Is me working out a positive endeavor? Yeah. Is me doing something I love a positive endeavor? Yeah. Is me having people that are supportive around me? Is that all that stuff good? Absolutely. But none of those things address what's causing the depression in the first place. They're all things that are helping you manage it. Sometimes depression is coming from a hormonal imbalance. I call that biochemical depression versus circumstantial depression. So if you have biochemical depression, your circumstances may be great, but you're still depressed. And that can be very disheartening for a lot of people, too, because sometimes you feel once I make this income and once I have this in my personal life and once I'm doing something I enjoy, then I'll finally be happy. And you achieve those things and you're still dealing with depression. You're like, well, what else do I have to achieve? And the problem is you keep looking for things outside of yourself. You keep thinking that the solution is in, act in an activity when the real solution is you have to get to the root causes. And this is where psychedelics have been talked about quite a bit things like psilocybin and DMT, because what these allow you to do is detach from your ego completely. So you get really in touch with your subconscious mind and you start seeing yourself almost from a third party perspective where now you get to see, you know what, this is my problem is I'm so ego dominated that everything is about defending my ego. And of course, I'm not going to be happy because that disconnects me from the world around me, from people around me, from experience in life fully. And some people have said, I've never done DMT. I've actually done psilocybin, which just microdosing, which I thought was really interesting. I had somewhat of a small effect of that, seeing yourself from the outside and realizing how ego dominant your brain can be. And that gives you an interesting perspective. But some people have said just one DMT session because it lasts about 20 minutes and it's really potent. Like Mike Tyson talks about it almost on every episode of his podcast. He's constantly bringing it up. But it's had, it had such a profound effect on him. It, some people equate it to several years of therapy. You're able to just have this very profound spiritual experience where you see yourself in a totally different way. Because most of what the way we see ourselves is the expectations that we have upon ourselves. So I want to build up my body because then other people are going to view me this way. Or I'm wanna, I want to speak in a way where people are like, wow, that guy's a great speaker. So now people see me in this way. But you're still constantly relying on feedback from others for your own personal self-worth. And that is basically another game of distraction. You know, who are you going to be if 
let's say you're someone who's like, okay, I, I used to be a skinny kid. Now I built all this muscle and now I have confidence. It's like, okay, you have confidence because of that. What if that's taken away from you? You're not going to have confidence again. It's like, oh, I used to make minimum wage and now I've built this really successful business and people are so impressed when they hear my story. It's like, all right, well, what if you lose all your money? Is your confidence going to go with it? It probably will because you're so attached to your self-worth based on how other people, your accomplishments and how other people view you. So I'm not saying that people shouldn't be driven and go out there and crush goals. You absolutely should. I like doing it too because it's, it's fun to do. But I think a lot of times we're addicted to stimulus because that's what makes us feel better about ourselves, And it also, more importantly, distracts us from having these conversations with ourselves. I mean, how many people can just lie on the couch, no music, no television, no reading, no people around, just 20 minutes of doing really nothing, just you alone with your thoughts? A lot of people can't do it. There's sensory deprivation chambers, right? I don't know if you've ever done that, a flow chamber. I did it a couple of years ago. I started doing it again. But basically, this is where you get naked. You go into somewhat – it looks like a, like a jacuzzi or a small pool, and the water is the same temperature as your skin temperature. And you put earplugs in, and it's completely black in there. I mean you can put your hand in front of your face. You can't see it. So you're, you're depriving yourself of as much sensory as possible. You can't hear anything. You can't see anything. And after a while, you almost feel like you can't feel anything. You feel like you're just floating through space. Now, I like doing this for an hour. I promise you, the average person wouldn't last an hour doing that. They would lose it. They'd be like, I've even, even when I've told this to people, I'm like, hey, here's something I tried that's really interesting. <laughs> you know, the first thing they ask is, can I take my phone in there? I go, no, can't take your phone in there. What are you going to do? You're going to sit there and text people? From, you're going to take selfies? Right. Yeah, that's what they're thinking. I'm going to take pictures of myself <laughs> and put it on Instagram. Or I'm going to distract myself on the phone. I go, no, the whole point of going in there is to deprive yourself yeah. of sensory because we're so inundated with sensory in our environment that this is what our world has come to is that we actually have to pay for an experience of sensory deprivation because we're on sensory overload otherwise. But when you're in there for, for an sure. hour, you realize that at first your mind is racing. When I first did it, I felt kind of a sense of claustrophobia. Like at first I tried, the first time I ever did it, I tried to shut off everything, just the, the lights and the sound, no problem. The earplugs, no problem. But when it when it went pitch black, at first it freaked me out. I was like, wow, I can't see anything. I turned the light back on immediately. I was like, okay, this time I'm just going to leave the light on. I'll block everything else out. I'm like, okay, I'm okay with this. The next time I shut off the light as well, so it's pitch black and I'm just floating in there for an hour. That felt really good. It took about 10, 20 minutes for your mind to stop racing. But then you can actually hear your heartbeat. You start relaxing. You get into a deep meditative state where when you come out, you feel refreshed. You feel rejuvenated. So something like this is, is so important in our lives because we have such sensory overload now like never before. You know, I grew up in the pre-cell phone era, and I certainly grew up in the pre-smartphone era where – it used to be when the first iteration of cell phones came out, everybody was talking on the phone all the time, and that was irritating. Now no one talks to each other anymore. Though. They're just texting all the time. Right. Or they're on their phone all the time. And I think one statistic showed that the average person under age 40 or 35 checks his or her phone every six minutes. It's the first thing you check in the morning every six minutes. I think that's probably a conservative estimate. I think people probably check it even more often than that. Six minutes sounds like a long time because I see people who never get off their phone. 
I've seen people in Red Rock who are on their phone. I, I walk my dogs every day. There's, there's guys walking their dogs, and he's just looking at his phone the whole time. And we're so addicted to this stuff, and it's not yeah. healthy. It's yeah. toxins for our brain, just like all these things about toxins in the environment, how to avoid it. That's important. Get rid of all these toxic sources in your home. Make sure your water health is as clean a source as possible. Make sure your diet yeah. is clean as possible. And those are all good things to get rid of environmental toxins. You're never going to be able to take this down to zero, but what you want to do is try to take it down to a manageable level so it's not having such a deleterious effect on your body. But then we also have to we have to, we have to go beyond toxins in the environment and look at toxins for our mind, junk food for our mind. I know a lot of people who eat healthy diets and engage in healthy lifestyles, but they're addicted to their smartphones and social media and television like everybody else is. So you're constantly inundating your brain with junk food. And I always tell people, try an experiment where you just cut out TV for a week. And a lot of people are like, well, I don't even have TV anymore. I just stream stuff. I'm like, yeah, that's great. I do that too. But that's still television. I mean, no television for a week. No YouTube, no Netflix, no Hulu, just for a week. I think very few people would even be able to get through that week. I'm not saying you can't read and I'm not saying you, can, you can't go to concerts and you can't go out and do stuff. You can even go to the movies. <laughs> Just don't go all day. But get away from all this technology. I think a lot, a lot of people would have a real hard time with that. I, I remember I used to tell my mother used to watch CNN all the time. You know, She passed back in 2015. But she was addicted to news and just being inundated. And it always had a really negative effect on her mood because she was a very empathetic person. And I would tell her, hey, hey just try cutting out TV for a week. And she would say, like an alcoholic, oh, I don't need to cut it out. I can quit anytime. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> so that's where our right. ego comes in. Anytime where, so, anytime where someone's giving us advice that we know we need, you notice that your automatic response, at least mine is, is this kind of ego defense. It's like, I don't need that. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, you should go try this. It's like, no, 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 no. I don't need to do that. It's like, what do I need to do that? And then I started thinking about it. I'm like, oh, you know what? I probably do need to go do that <laughs> because otherwise I wouldn't have such a strong reaction. You see it in all aspects of life, diet and, you know, fitness and whatever it may be. But um, yeah, I'm glad you bring up this topic about mental health. And I actually was going to bring up uh, Chester. Lincoln Park is one of my favorite bands. And, yeah. um, you know, when he, when Chester Bennington passed, um, it really struck a chord with me. It's like I always thought a sense of purpose was enough to keep you going. But obviously it's not. And it's, you know, having the right support group as well. But it's it, it's really, you know going off after the underlying cause, like you said, like, or else you're going to have depression constantly, or, or maybe you can argue as well, you know, looking after your hormone levels, I'm sure that plays a role. Um, and, uh, you know, I've gone through depression myself, you know, I, I can I probably most people have gone through some sort of depression. Oh, yeah. Mine was in, one of my examples was in my early twenties, you know, I started losing my hair. Like I, you know, hair loss was a big thing for me. And, um, right, right. You know, I'm going on to 29 now, so it's not as big of a deal as it was like when I was a young man. But um, yeah, what I, I actually wanted to I had hair loss written down here on my notes. I wanted to ask you how, you know, have you read anything or heard of anything of how hormones play into hair loss? Because to me, it's like yeah. it's a it's a mystery because I'm looking at different animals, different species, and none of the animals are going through it and like, you know, male pa pattern baldness it's it's a really unique thing i feel like is only you know only humans are susceptible to it i may be wrong there but um what are your thoughts on that 
Yeah, some animals lose hair, which is generally from stress. You know, they're they're basically like some baboons lose a lot of hair because they're low on the the hierarchy and they're basically bullied by all the other baboons. But that could be from them just pulling their own hair out from a, as a stress response. Yeah. So the thing with the thing with male pattern baldness in particular is that that's generally hereditary. Was your father bald, or were your did you have that in your in your family? Most yeah. of my family members. So you have a genetic pre. Yeah. So fifty percent of things like that are going to be at least genetic. Now there's like people often there's a hormone called DHT, right, which is actually more powerful than testosterone in terms of improving virility, sex drive, and so forth. Now, in, in men that are prone to – DHT is often blamed as what the cause of male pattern baldness, but, it, but it's a superficial explanation of what most people give. So what they try to do is – like let's say when you first started losing your hair, if you went to a doctor, they might have recommended a DHT blocker as a way to prevent further hair loss. But yeah. the problem with that is, is that it's going to obliterate your sex drive and sex function. So you have to make a choice. Do I want to keep my hair or do I want, I want to feel horrible all the time? Yeah, they recommended different hormones, Rogaine, and I, I chose to be off of it. Yeah, I chose to be off of it. I'm like, what? I'm not going to compromise my health. Like I'm losing my hair. I'm not going to like lose my health over it as well. Oh, I've had I've had men that have contacted me who tried these drugs as a way to prevent hair loss. And the negative repercussions lasted for years. It took them a long time to get right. Some of them were like, I'm still not right. You know, what can I do? Well, you have, you have a serious hormone imbalance. Your DHT levels are, have been obliterated. Now, DHT is often blamed for prostate enlargement, too, which is also another superficial deduction. It's blamed for male pattern baldness. Again, superficial. DHT has an affinity for hair follicles, but only in men that have a genetic proclivity for hair loss. So in other words, my DHT levels are pretty high, and, and my hairline begins in my forehead. You know, I've got the Eddie Munster hairline, and I'm 46. I still have a head full of hair. So I don't, I don't have a genetic predisposition to hair loss still. Like my dad still has a full head of hair and so forth. I think there were some people – I think there was some male pattern baldness on my mom's side, maybe her father, my grandfather. But I'm not sure about that. So a lot of that is genetic is where I'm going. Now, things that can prevent that – some doctors like Dr. Terry Hertog say that having really healthy testosterone levels is what gives you a really thick head of hair. I don't think it's as simple as that though. So in other words – I'm not saying you have low testosterone because you you uh, you experience hair loss. A lot of men have experienced hair loss and they have really high testosterone levels. So it's it's hard to it's hard to pinpoint whether you could have done anything about the genetic predisposition. So there there are things sometimes hair thinning is a result of low testosterone, too much stress, etc. But I, I don't think anyone understands fully why hair loss happens beyond the genetic factor and what anyone can do to prevent that or slow it down. And I think the methods that are currently used are disastrous, such as trying to block production of hormones that we need to feel our best. It's kind of like when someone has estrogen levels that are too high. It's like, okay, we want to lower those levels, but we don't want to obliterate those levels. We want to make sure the testosterone to estrogen ratio is a healthy one. Because I've, I actually have an estrogen blocker myself. It's a natural one. It's one of my products, EC, one of my supplements. Now, while it's natural, and people like Dr. Mark Gordon use it with his TRT patients that have aromat high aromatase levels, which is an enzyme that converts testosterone to estrogen, that doesn't mean that it can't lower estrogen too much. So if I take too much of it myself, you know, I, I already don't have high estrogen just from my diet and lifestyle. 
So if I take it, it's more just to keep things in an optimal range. But if I take too much, let's say I take three caps, it can actually lower my estrogen too much where I don't even need to do a test. I can feel it. I know what it feels like to have really low estrogen levels. You have, you're more prone to depression. You start getting joint pain and you have serious sexual dysfunction, sometimes even like serious shrinkage. You're like, whoa, what's happening here? You know, that, right. you know something alarming. You're like, damn, it's not even cold outside. What's going on? <laughs> So these things can be kind of scary when you don't understand why they're happening. I think yeah. it's, I think anything that happens to us health-wise is scary when you don't understand why it's happening. When you understand why it's happening, you know what – I mean, for me, I know what to do about it. So if I feel a certain way, I know hormonally why I feel that way and I can do something about it. And that's a much more empowering place to be. And that's why I try to proliferate all this information so that people don't panic. They can. I mean I have yeah. so much free content on my website. People can get in there. And the point is I'm not trying to get people – to treat themselves, what I'm trying to do is get people very knowledgeable so that when they're working with a doctor or a naturopath or whatever methodology is they're comfortable with, they're educated on this information so they can at least discern whether they're getting good advice or not. Well, a lot of people are completely clueless. So they walk into a doctor's office and, hey, I'm experiencing hair loss. And the doctor says, okay, well, let's get you on Propecia or I forget all the different ones, but they're all DHT blockers, essentially. That's how they work. Alpha- 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. And if you don't know better, you're going to say, okay, fine, let's give that a shot. Anytime a medication is the first thing that's offered, that's already just that's, that's already an alarm bell to me. I'm not saying that medications never have a usage. They definitely can, mm -hmm. but it, right. it shouldn't be the first course of action. So if someone goes, I'm depressed, okay, let's give you a script for a serotonin reuptake inhibitor when, you know, a lot of a lot of these there was a drug Paxil where pharmaceutical companies, they, they do all their own research, right? So this is not done by a third party to determine effectiveness. Now they could have 500 studies that show that the product is completely ineffective and they can have two, which are set up in a certain way to get the outcome they want that show that it has merit. They only have to reveal the two. They don't have to show you the 500 that no. showed you that it doesn't yeah. work. Now, there's something called a Freedom of Information Act where you can ask to see this information, but who's going to go through all those – who's going to go through a thousand articles in a drug to decide whether they should take it or not? No one is. And these things are so these things are written in language that most people can't even understand, research language, and it's also very boring stuff to go through. So th this is all done on purpose. So if – but how often does someone go in – with depression symptoms and not leave with the drug, or you have high cholesterol, okay, let's get you on Lipitor. It's like, well, why don't we look at your diet first and figure out what's going on there? Because chances are we can get the cholesterol into a healthy range. Now, you don't want to have cholesterol that's way too low because cholesterol is actually the building block for all hormones, but you don't, you don't need it through the roof either. We don't need that, the negative repercussions that come with that. We certainly don't need a drug that's going to drive it really low because a lot of the people who take Lipitor, what happened is they started experiencing memory loss from the cholesterol not converting into things like pregnenolone and other things that are important for memory. And then also they started experiencing a big decline in sex drive because, again, the cholesterol is the building block for all your sex hormones. So if you, if you obliterate that, and the only way you're going to obliterate it is with a drug. You know, you're not going to follow a diet where most of our cholesterol is made by is our own production. It's not coming in from our diet anyway. So we, so we don't have to worry about our cholesterol going too low with diet. It's not something anyone has to worry about on any kind of diet. And if it does, if you feel like it's going too low, you just increase your fat intake a little bit. 
But with the drug, it can take it into an artificial range that we would never experience. So the drugs at best are just another coping mechanism. Maybe they make you feel better to get you through a stressful point, but whatever's causing it is still there while you're on it. So it's, it's not addressing that. Root causes is very difficult to address because you have to peel back a lot of layers. And, and generally, you're going to need professional help. Now, that's why if someone's dealing with depression and you feel like you've done everything you can do and you're still feeling a certain way, then I think a good therapist is worth going to because he or she can help you peel back those layers, give you another perspective of yourself, and also maybe help have you accept some truths that you're not willing to accept. Because again, we always go into ego defense whenever we're getting advice, especially from friends and family. We just shut it down immediately. So that's, so yeah, so I mean, back to the male pattern baldness, I, I, I think having an optimal home run profile will help people that have a genetic predisposition maybe slow down hair loss but I, I can't say that it's gonna that you can do that you could have done things to prevent hair loss. I think at best right. you could have delayed the inevitable. Yeah, yeah. Hair, lo hair loss is different now. When I was growing up, the only bald guy we ever saw was Kojak, right? It was this this TV detective. <laughs> you know, no one else was. I mean, it was a big problem for men if you were losing your hair. That's why the hair pieces came in and so forth. I see guy I see more guys with shaved heads now than I ever have seen. Yeah, it's true. Ever. And not every single one of them is shaving their head because of hair loss. I used to have my head shaved too. Now, and I, I can grow a head full of hair, but I just shaved it for fashion. I just like the look of it. So now, now it's fashionable for men to have shaved heads where it doesn't necessarily have the same negative impact on your self-view as it did when I was growing up where it was a big problem for a lot of people. For sure. Yeah. Thank, thank you. I was just really curious to see if if um, you you knew anything about that, that's really um, useful info there. And you mentioned a little bit about um, different things like a lower sex drive that I actually had that written down too. Um, I was wondering if yeah. you could go more into that and um, if there's anything outside of diet that, you know, if somebody is lacking in sex drive or even women right. who are taking the pill, um, how that yeah. affects uh, their bodies or if it does at all. Yeah, the, the pill, the birth control pill is either a chemical variation of estrogen or progesterone, which are both important hormones. But it's if, if women are going to take estrogen or progesterone, it should be bioidentical, similar to what your body makes. Birth control pills aren't. So there's a lot of negative repercussions with birth control pills. I don't recommend them at all. I think they're – I think birth control, the man should wear a condom or you come up with some other methodology because mm – -hmm. I would not recommend birth control pills to women at all. I think it has a very negative impact on their endocrinology because you're introducing a chemical derivative that's very potent of a hormone that we produce, but it's not the hormone that we're producing. So that's going to create a serious imbalance in my opinion. So that should definitely be avoided. In terms of how it affects a woman's sex drive, I'm not real well researched on that. I would imagine that it definitely doesn't increase it, and I can only imagine it hurting because again, a sex drive comes from a balanced hormonal state. So with the main reason why both men and women deal with low sex drive or low libido is number one, stress, cortisol, super high levels. Now, here's what's interesting. In Yohan Hari's book, it showed he, 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 worked, he looked at the research and working with experts on depression, and they found that experiencing emotional stress right? Like someone 
maybe you're dealing with a very emotionally abusive parents. They, they didn't physically harm you, but they were very emotionally abusive, such as you're worthless. You're never going to amount to anything and you know, stop doing that. You, you know, that, that, that kind of language. Now we hear stuff like that. We think, you know, those are just words. I can just block that out. But that emotional stress is it increases cortisol just as much as someone coming along, boom, punching you in the face. So it's hard to believe that because when someone punches us in the face, I mean, that's an immediate reaction of like, wow, that hurts. And this person is probably going to try to hurt me more. So now your cortisol is going through the roof and you either get into a fight or flight type situation. That one's obvious. We know that's stressful. If someone's dealing with physical assault all the time, maybe they're getting bullied and so forth. That's a no brainer. Of course, that's stressful. And that's going to have a very negative impact on your mood and your sex drive, et cetera. But that emotional distress we don't think of that much. I, I, I remember seeing relatives that were very emotionally abusive to their significant others, but they didn't think it was that big of a deal in terms of the person that's delivering the emotional abuse. You know, they lose their temper. They go off on certain things. No matter what the other person does, they can't get it right. In their mind, they're probably not thinking they're abusive at all. They're like, well, I'm just venting my anger. But you have, But words have an impact. And that emotional abuse can last someone a lifetime if it happens to them when they're a child or even older, especially childhood abuse. That can, that's a huge one that you experiencing something very traumatic as a child, such as sexual abuse, molestation, or even just a lot of emotional abuse. Maybe no one physically harmed you, but it just emotionally you were made to feel like nothing for a long period of time. That's extremely difficult to overcome as an adult. And a lot of times adults are trying to overcompensate with, I'm going to become really strong so that no one ever tries to bully me again. I'm going to build up my bodies as a defense mechanism. I'm going to go become really successful, prove, prove these people wrong. You know, think about how much of a lot of people's actions is trying to prove people wrong. It's like, I'm going to show these people that I can do this. Right. Yep. Why do you have to show anyone anything? You know, do it because you enjoy doing it. But why does it have to be about showing people that you don't even like? You don't even like these people. You think they're terrible people. So why do you have to prove anything to them? So all right. these – the number one thing with low sex drive is stress, number one. And also a poor diet is a form of stress. Also, let's think about things a little bit further also. You're, let's say someone eats a lot of animal protein and it's all coming from factory farms. Not only are you getting all these chemicals in that we mentioned, what do you think the animal was producing at the time of death? Serious levels of cortisol and adrenaline. Yeah. Those things go into the tissues. So I don't think it's far-fetched at all to think that when you consume that animal product, that you're at least on some level – taking in those stress hormones. I mean, one of the reasons why people often say meat is great for testosterone is because you're actually getting testosterone from the meat itself, right? Not just the saturated fats, which allegedly improves. I mean, any fat is good for increasing your sex hormones. So it just doesn't have to be saturated fat. It could be nuts and seeds, olive oil, et cetera. So, I mean, so that, one is, that one doesn't even make sense. As long as you have a good amount of fats in your diet, you don't have to eat a high-fat diet to have optimal sex hormone production either. Just have to have a decent amount for, for your levels, for your own needs, rather. But why would contributing to that level of suffering not come back around and have a negative impact on you, whether you think about it or not? I really don't see how it's possible 
that you don't suffer in some way when you're supporting that kind of stuff. So that's another factor as well. So diet can be a big form of stress. And let's take meat out of the equation. There's also a lot of sugar and processed foods. People, I mean, the amount of sugar that we consume as a society is really dangerous. And then also I've, I hear people when they, when they talk about vegan desserts, they go, oh, yeah, it's vegan. And they're saying that as if it's somehow healthier than <laughs> the non-vegan alternative, which it, really, right. which it really isn't. I'm not saying don't eat it. I'm not saying don't yeah. enjoy these things from time to time. But don't think, oh, this, this donut is vegan? Cool. I can eat five of them since it doesn't have dairy and eggs in it. No, yeah, don't fool yourself. Other chemical. Yeah, don't kid yourself with that. So enjoy those things, but accept it for what it is. This, this is a form of entertainment. You're eating a piece of cake because it tastes good and so forth. There's no nutritional value. You know it. Don't be guilty about it. But don't kid yourself thinking that this is something you can do often and not suffer negative repercussions. So when our sugar goes through the roof, insulin goes through the roof. That causes a cortisol spike to deal with the excess insulin. And now we're in this cortisol state all the time from not only life experiences from the food we're eating. So what we want our food to be is as nutritious as possible because that gives us the reserves to handle whatever stress life is going to throw at us more. So when you eat really well, you're going to perform way better. You perform way better, you're going to handle stress way better. You're going to sleep better because you're not inundating yourself with all this garbage that your liver has to process. Every time you eat all this garbage, your liver has to try to filter all that stuff out as much as possible, and the liver can get overwhelmed. I mean, you're talking about straight edge. One of the benefits of straight edge is that you're not drinking, and because drinking is dr – alcohol is just varying degrees of negative, meaning that there's no positive to it. Now, some will say, oh, yeah, what about the French paradox? You have a glass of wine, blah, 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 blah. Look, alcohol – converts testosterone to estrogen in men, all alcohol, not just beer. Beer is often blamed because it has hops, which is a phytoestrogen, but it's the alcohol that converts testosterone to estrogen. It's the alcohol that increases your likelihood of getting insulin resistance. And insulin is a master control hormone. So when insulin and leptin are not optimal, meaning that you're not, you're not producing the ideal amount, not too much or too little, you're not going to be in a optimal state hormonally, because those are master control hormones. So even moderate drinking has a negative impact. Moderate drinking compared to excessive is way healthier. No kidding, of course, of course it's healthier, but that doesn't mean that it's healthy. That doesn't mean that moderate drinking is healthy. I think the healthiest parts of drinking is the bonding that can occur with other people. Right. So let's say two women, for example, like to have a glass of wine in the evening because they they commensurate their days and talk about what's going on and so forth. And it, it just happens to be over a glass or two of wine. It's that bonding that's healthy, irrespective of the alcohol consumption. It's not because they're drinking wine together. That it's not the wine that's making them have that's healthy for their body. It's what they're doing. So a, a lot of people wouldn't even be social if they didn't drink. You, know, you get together with people at the bar, you have happy hour on Friday and so forth. It's that social bonding that is that people are starving for, frankly. I have more, me having a, a quick conversation with a cashier at Whole Foods, that's a positive exchange, that's going to be more useful than me texting someone for an hour or getting on Instagram and just going back and forth. You know, someone I'm never going to meet in the real right. world. 
Right. You know, at least you and I, we're talking through a technology medium here, but we're actually looking at each other and we're having a conversation. Yeah. So in other words, while while you're talking, I'm not sitting there going, "Yeah, that's great." <laughs> oh yeah, 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 sure. You know. We I can't stand that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> when I was on Rich Roll's podcast, I wasn't like, "Hold on, Rich, I just got a text." Oh, okay. Right. Anyways, you were saying, no, we're having an uninterrupted conversation, and you realize how hungry people are for it. I think one of the reasons why podcasts are so popular is because people don't have good conversations in their life. They don't know people that are where they have positive conversations. So they want to listen to your show or my show or Joe Rogan show or any show where they're hearing people that are positive and having a good conversation. It's like they're a fly on the wall. But but it's not the same as having a good conversation on your own in the real world. Okay, so all this is coming back to we're stressed. That's why our sex drive is low. When you're stressed, the last thing on your mind is sex. You're not thinking, God, I can't pay the bills. And I just found out I've got some health issue. Let me have sex now. You know, that'll help. So you don't, that's the last, at least for me speaking personally, that's the last thing on my mind. Sex is something that I want to engage in when I feel good, when I'm thriving. So when you're in a thriving state, your sex drive goes up. What sex drive is, though, is an indicator of your health. So when your sex drive is high, it means you're in a thriving state. So biologically, it means that you're healthy. Go procreate because you're going to bring other healthy beings into the world. When your sex drive is really low, it's a sign that your internal health is not good. So it's basically saying don't procreate because you're going to make the gene pool worse. So the last thing we want you doing is having sex because you're not healthy at all. So that's why sex drive is such an important barometer of your overall health. So when my sex drive plummets, and that happens to me, when I get stressed, my sex drive, it's gone, it obliterates. I know something, when, when that happens, I don't just sit there and go, oh, well, I'm just going to deal with that. I go, okay, something's wrong, and I need to figure out what it is. Maybe something's wrong with my diet. You know, Maybe I have, which is probably not the case because my diet's really clean. But maybe I'll, I look at it and I go, you know what, I've been eating out a lot more recently. I've been eating a lot more processed food than I normally do. I've been taking in more desserts. I've been having a couple cookies every day, and I'm very sensitive to sugar. So if I have a lot of sugar, the next day I feel like I went out drinking. I have a hangover mm -hmm. type effect. Like I'll be right. depressed the whole next day. So I learned this a long time ago that I do much better on really healthy fat sources, some low glycemic carbohydrates. My, my favorite carbohydrate sources are legumes, nuts and seeds, which have some carbohydrates, mainly more fat, but have carbohydrates and protein as well. Things like oatmeal, you know, I feel really good on those. I have nice, steady energy. I can just blast through the day. But if I'm eating, let's say, a bunch of garbage, you're eating out a lot and you're eating a bunch of sugary type foods, it has almost an immediate effect on my mood. So just going through the list, I'm like, okay, that, is that a factor? And sometimes it's not. So I go, okay, it has to be something else then. Sometimes it's something internally that you're dealing that you haven't that you need to deal with that you've distracted yourself from. Because let's be honest, a lot of people they don't have time to think about why they think a certain way or what's going on in their life on their lives in a profound level when you're trying to survive. When you're trying to put food on the table and you're trying to make enough money to pay the rent, you know, a lot of people, these are the realities that they deal with is how am I going to pay the rent this month? How am I going to provide for my kids and myself? That, that Those are daily stresses. Imagine if that's something you have to think about all the time, how stressful that is. Of course, you're not going to have any sex drive. It's going to be the last thing Now, not everyone is in that situation, but a lot of people are. And a lot of people are only a few paychecks away from being homeless as well, if they're perfectly honest with themselves. So you may not think about that consciously, but unconsciously, you're going... 
I can't tell my boss to F off for being an abusive jerk because if I do, I'm going to lose this job and then we're going to be out on the streets. So think about how stressful that is when you have no control. When you have a feeling that you have no control over your life, that you're just at the mercy of circumstances and other people's whims, that's extremely stressful. We've all had jobs where maybe we work for someone who's a jerk. And I mean, you just you just fantasize about telling this person to F off, you know, <laughs> you can't because the repercussions come with it. The last job I ever had, which was a source of stress, the last job I ever had, I was stressed all the time. And it wasn't because I was working so hard. It wasn't because I was burning the midnight oil trying to produce for this company. It's because I was bored out of my mind. It was so boring. It was not satisfying at all. I didn't have anyone telling me, hey, Mike, thanks for doing that. That made a positive impact on my life. Since the 17 years I've been a fitness professional, every week I get emails from people saying, I really benefited from your product or your video, or I took your course 10 years ago, or I read your book, you know, whatever it is. I get that kind of positive feedback all the time. And that's extremely gratifying. I never got that working for someone else in the jobs I did. So again, this is not a, this is not a, like a slam on working for other people. It's just my experience. But I, uh, that, that feeling of boredom was stressful. A lot of times you're driving to work and you would have this thought in your head, you know what? If I just went off the road and died right now, it wouldn't really matter. doesn't mean that like I'm suicidal and I'm trying to make that happen, but you almost don't care if it does happen. And that's not good. <laughs> when you don't, when, when you don't feel that you being alive or not matters, that's extremely stressful. That's, that's very, a, it's very disheartening to yourself to think that way. But that's the way I would feel doing that. But a lot of people do jobs where they never get any positive feedback from anybody. You know, people working at the casinos, cleaning toilets all day long and cleaning up after people in hotel rooms. Some of these jobs pay fairly well. So they're happy to have the job. But how often is anyone saying, hey, thanks a lot for doing that? You go see a janitor. Hey, thanks a lot for cleaning this bathroom. I know it's a tough job to do. And every time I come in here at night, it's nice and clean because of the efforts you do. They're not getting that. People don't even see those people. You know, <laughs> We just walk through lives. We don't even notice them. So that's a huge source of stress for a lot of people is not only just wondering about your future, like how am I, am I going to be able to take care of myself or am I going to be living in a homeless shelter? The things like that are stressful. And then the immediate of, uh, am I doing anything that makes a positive impact for anyone else? And if the answer is no, that's pretty difficult as well. And that's what leads people to start drinking and doing drugs and other self-destructive behaviors. Now you're watching internet porn all night long. You're on uh, Netflix all day long. You're on social media trying to post fake pictures of you being happy. So other people say, oh, you look great. You're doing a good job, et cetera. These are all really unhealthy healthy behaviors, and they all have a very negative impact on your sex drive. So I, can, I can name off a bunch of things that help with libido, you know, things like maca, things like my testosterone booster, if, if it's a hormonal reason. Now, but like I said, there's biochemical depression and then there's circumstantial depression. Now, here's the caveat, though. You may have biochemical depression, which you think is independent of circumstances, but most of the time it isn't. So if you have low testosterone, the solution necessarily isn't, let me take Mike's product to increase testosterone because I have low testosterone. Sure, that's probably going to work to some extent, but the real question is, why do you have low testosterone in the first place? Because the ideal person with my products is, Okay, my testosterone level is pretty good, but I want to take his product to make it even better so I get better results out of whatever I'm doing, right? That's the ideal. 
state, as opposed to someone who's extremely depleted, who's like, let me take that to get my levels back up so I don't have to think about why they're low in the first place. You know, that's not an ideal situation. That's ideal in the short run, because if you increase your levels, you're going to have more drive to figure out what's going on. You know, when your testosterone levels are really low and your DHEA is really low and your growth hormones really low, you're in such a depleted state. It's hard to be proactive about anything. It's hard to go to the gym because you just have no desire. And even if you get there, it's hard to push yourself in those workouts. And if your levels are really low, you're not going to have a good workout and you're not going to recover well from it. You, you need optimal testosterone to get the most out of your workouts as opposed to using your workouts as a way to increase testosterone growth hormone. Whatever increase you get from that is short-lived. That's more of a sign of a good workout. So if I hit a workout really hard, 45 minutes, I feel really good afterwards, my sex drive is up, that's a sign that I had a really good workout. But those levels aren't going to just stay at that point all day or night long. It's going to go right back to where they were eventually before you engage in that workout. A better scenario is I'm eating properly, I'm using supplements if I feel beneficial, and I get my levels optimal before I even go there because now I'm going to have a way better workout. Most athletes, the level of training they go through depletes them of testosterone growth hormone. That's why so many were, are, are taking anabolics or were. Like in the UFC, a lot of people, everyone was getting this TRT exemption at some point, at one point, because the level of training these athletes subject themselves to is three times a day of really hard training. That's not going to increase your your sex hormone production, that's going to lower it. That's going to deplete you. And that's why people start turning to these. So stress is number one. But what I always tell people is this, you can do things that will improve your levels right now while you try to cope with that. But don't look at them as a long-term solution because eventually, eventually it's not going to work either. It's going to work right now, but you'll find that, okay, you know what? I did that. My sex drive's great for the next six months. And then it went back down again. It's probably going to be worse that time than it was the first time. And then it just keeps getting worse with each successive bout of it. Just like depression often gets more attenuated with each time. So like the first time it happens, it's moderate depression. The second time it happens, it's a little bit more. The third time it happens, now we're starting to get towards severe. And then it just keeps getting worse because you're not addressing the real problem. It's like, it's like credit card debt, right? It's like you start off with a small amount. And if you don't address it, it becomes a bigger amount. And then it, you're still not addressing it. Now it becomes an overwhelming amount that you're never going to pay off. And I think depression is like that as well. You don't want to wait until it gets that overwhelming amount to do anything. So if you have a low sex drive, that's a sign that there's something wrong with your endocrinology. And it's possible that it's biochemical, meaning it's independent of circumstances, but more likely it's because of circumstances and it's probably it may be circumstances that you're not even aware of. It may not even be obvious. And that's the the challenging part of it. I agree. Yeah, I, I totally agree that people should catch it early. So if they're having symptoms of low sex drive or whatever it is, uh, if they're really stressed out that they should um, get tests. Now, my question to you is uh, what tests like lab tests, blood work or, or whatnot, yeah. which ones would you recommend people get if they have symptoms and they believe their hormones are out of whack? Yeah, sure. I mean, direct directlabs.com, you can go, you can requisition the forms and take it to, let's say, your local Quest Diagnostics or Diagnostech. And you can have the results ran independent of a doctor, meaning that you'll get the results. Now, the problem is, is that if you don't know how to interpret these results, you're not really going to know what to do with that. 
So it's always better to work with someone who is skilled, whether it's a physician or a naturopath, you know, someone like uh, Thomas Inkledon, who I've had on the podcast, Dr. Nick Delgado, Dr. Mark Gordon, or someone they recommend, because you need a guide to help you walk through all this stuff. Otherwise, you're just looking at numbers on a piece of paper, and you're not really having someone interpret those numbers and try to help you determine why these numbers are the way they are. But let's say you just want to you just want to confirm of what's going on. Fine. Go run the test. And now you're confirming like, you know what? I have low sex drive because my testosterone level is really low. Looking at this here, my DHEA is really low, too. So that's that's another point. So now now you know why you feel the way you do. But you don't necessarily know why your numbers are low. Are your numbers low because of your diet? Are your numbers low because you have a lot of stress in your personal life and your professional life? Are your numbers low because you have vitamin mineral deficiencies? You know, now it becomes more of a challenge. What most people want when they see a low numbers is they want to improve those numbers as fast as possible. And I get that. And that's not a bad strategy because you want to feel better, but it's not a long-term strategy either. You want to look at why you, you need to find out why these numbers are not ideal in the first place and go from there. Gotcha. Yeah, it's a, the male hormone profile, and there's a female hormone profile. The saliva testing is also an option, and there's some controversy in, in the anti-aging community of which one is ideal. Some recommend blood, some recommend saliva, some like 24-hour urine test, which is exactly what it sounds like. You get this big jug, and every time you have to urinate over a 24-hour period, you urinate into this jug, you put it in the refrigerator until it's time to ship it to a lab, and then that gives you a picture of what's going on in 24 hours. So you can and see the ebb and flow of your hormone production. The problem with the blood test is it, it tells you what's going on at the exact moment that the blood was drawn. Your levels could have been lower or higher an hour later. Most likely, it's a fairly accurate indicator of what's going on because levels don't fluctuate that much, meaning you're not going to have a total testosterone of 300 when you get the blood test done, and then five hours later, it's 900. And things just don't fluctuate like that. It's highly unlikely. Right. But it's not going to be as accurate. It's also just showing you what's floating through the bloodstream. It doesn't necessarily tell you what's happening on the receptor level. I'll tell you one thing that shows the complexity. A lot of times athletes have, or active people rather, they have really good total testosterone, which is the entire amount of what your body's able to produce. Okay, then there's free testosterone, which is considered what you actually have access to. So imagine having a savings account. You have a million dollars in there but you can only access $10,000 of it. The rest of it you can't access. So it's, it's almost as if you don't even, really you only have $10,000 is what this means in this example. So you have a million dollars on paper, but you can't access only, you can only access a small portion of it. So that's what's going on with someone who has high total testosterone and then their free testosterone, let's say it's low. Now the caveat to that is with people who engage in intense exercise, not just athletes, but those of us that are recreational workout people like myself, and I know you work out too. A lot of times our free testosterone will be low because of androgen receptor uptake. So I may have high testosterone, total testosterone, which is great because the more total testosterone you're producing, the more of it that can be freed up. But my free testosterone may be on the lower side of the scale. And I'm going, why is, why is my free testosterone low when my total testosterone is high? If I don't work out at all, that's a sign that it's just getting bound up and not utilized. But if I train really hard, that's a sign or it's a possible sign that it's androgen receptor uptake where it's being pulled out of the blood. And we have androgen receptors in all of our organs, in our heart, 
you know, it's not just the testicles and so forth. So we're getting, we're, we're scooping the testosterone out of the bloodstream and it's not showing up in the bloodstream because it's being utilized. Now, some could say, well, just take a couple of weeks off from working out and then we'll get a more accurate indicator. So yeah, but I don't want to take a couple of weeks from working out because there's so many benefits of doing it. I don't want to do that just to get a more accurate indicator on a blood test. So that's where saliva testing tells you what's going on on the tissue level. So saliva testing, you get a kit, you spit into a tube about that big, and then that's analyzed. And that tells you what's going on at the tissue level. So some argue that's a more accurate indicator of free testosterone because it tells you what's going on in the tissue level. And I would say that that's a fair statement to make. So my way, though, is so I don't overly complicate this process is I usually do blood testing just because that's more convenient and I can get a lot more done, too. I can I can test cholesterol. And glucose and insulin and so many things. Saliva testing is more going to be just sex hormones or cortisol. It's useful, it's useful for that, but you can't get a full health profile with just saliva. In other words, you're not going to test your cholesterol or your, your C-reactor protein, which is a measure of inflammation in the body, things like that. So the blood test, you can get more comprehensive testing done. Now, I know how to interpret these results that I don't have to hire anyone. I just look at the results. And if there's a question, I have friends who are doctors I can bounce ideas off of. So I can look at my blood work and say, okay, my total testosterone is really high. My free testosterone is not low, but it's not on the high end. But I can say, well, I'm training very intensely. In fact, I trained really intensely the day before I got that blood work done. So of course, it's not going to be on the high end. More important than all of that, though, is how are you feeling? Because it doesn't really matter what the numbers are if I'm feeling a certain way. So if I've had, I've, I've written about this before too. I've had times where I've gone to get tested where my sex drive is through the roof and my mood is off the charts and I'm feeling great and I'm my workouts, I'm killing it. My, my personal life is great. And I'm expecting my total testosterone to be off to scale. I'm expecting free to be way past the high end of normal. And it isn't. Sometimes the total testosterone's in, it's in the normal range, but it's, it's not super high. It's like 600, which is good, but it's not off the scales. And then the free testosterone is right in the middle. And I go, well, wait a minute. I was expecting to feel, I was expecting my numbers to feel way, to be way better than this. And you're almost disappointed until you realize who cares what the numbers are. If I'm feeling like this, that's what matters. I've had times where the numbers are way higher and I was expecting them to be lower because I wasn't feeling that great. That doesn't make me feel any better though. You know, I don't look at the numbers and go, oh, okay, cool. Don't worry about not feeling good. Your numbers are great here. Right. It makes me, it's, it's, it's fairly complex is where I'm going. So more important than what the numbers are is how are you feeling? But you have to be honest about that. And a lot of guys aren't. A lot of guys are like, oh yeah, my sex drives through the roof. You know, I can't get enough. When in reality, that's nowhere near the case. They're just trying to, they're trying to validate. They're trying to tell someone what they want to hear, which I don't necessarily understand why. Who cares? The doctor doesn't care. Save their ego. If, if, if you're lying to yourself. Yeah. Only hurting yourself because the doctor is not going to be impressed one way or the other. Who cares? The doctor sees lab work all day long. They're just going to believe what you're saying because that's what you're saying. But a lot of times you can tell when someone's lying too because if the levels are really low, there's no way they're feeling that way. So you have to be honest with yourself, and most most people are because this is all done in private. You know, we're not we're not reviewing someone's lab work in front of an audience. Yeah, <laughs> where right. they have to try to defend themselves in any way. Most of the time, this is done in private, and most of the time, I get emails from guys all the time that are experiencing very low sex drive, and sometimes they're like, "Man, if you ever met me, you would never guess that uh, that I'm experiencing this because there's some yoked out guy who does CrossFit five times a week and they're ripped and so forth." And I go, "You know what? It doesn't surprise me at all." I would say people who work out hard are more likely 
to have a lower sex drive than people who are more sedentary because you're working out is a form of stress and it can deplete your sex hormones. I've seen super high numbers, both free and total with people that are nowhere close to being impressive physical specimens at all. I had an older guy that was in his 60s whose total testosterone was 900, which is a great number for a kid who's 21. And his free was off the scale too. It was literally off the scale. It was, it was higher than the high end of normal. If you met this guy in person, you would not think, oh yeah, that guy looks like he's got super high testosterone levels. And I've seen the inverse. I've seen people that are super strong and very vital and they have terrible numbers. So it says they may have started with really good numbers, but their lifestyle has caused it to become depleted. So you got to be honest with yourself and you have to look at, you know, what's going on in your lifestyle. If, if I were going to run someone's blood test and their free level is low, I would ask them, when's the last time you worked out hard? Because that can be the reason why it's low. And then I would say, more importantly, how are you feeling? Because if you feel like crap in your sex drive, then let's explore further. If your sex drive is good and your mood is great, then really nothing to worry about here. Don't worry about the number. Right. And and I haven't even asked you about fitness yet, uh, which I think I think might be a good <laughs> way to, to to wrap this up because you're huge into fitness. Sure. You're you're um a trainer yeah. and you know, while you're vegan, you're you're pretty big, man. You've got a lot of muscle on you. So I was just wondering, maybe um, and maybe you could share some of your perspective here too, but what would you recommend? to somebody who's trying to build muscle and, you know, trying to live a healthy lifestyle. Uh, what are the the diet, the fitness recommendations you would recommend? And I know you mentioned some supplements before, but what supplements yeah. would you recommend people incorporate? Yeah, I mean, the big picture of it, training is you want to focus on compound movements. So there's five areas I like to cover. I call them the five pillars. And that's an upper body press. An example of that would be weighted dips, bench press, incline press, overhead press. Upper body pulling motion, examples of that would be bent over row, pull-ups, weighted pull-ups if you're strong, one-arm bent over rows, lap pull-downs. Those are all examples of upper body pulling motions where not only do you work the biceps and forearms, you work the lats and upper back. So you're getting a synergy and you're working several muscle groups with one exercise. So it's more, it's more, it's more time conservative. You're not wasting a lot of time to train your body. So that actually covers the upper body. And then there's torso work, so core work, things like dragon flags, hanging leg raises, ab wheel rollouts, kettlebell windmill, Turkish getup. Those are all good examples of midsection work. And then there's the lower body. So lower body press would be something such as a squat, a leg press, and then a lower body pull would be something such as deadlifts, Romanian deadlifts, kettlebell swings, glute ham raise. So if you cover those five areas, you're getting a complete full body workout. Some people may benefit from some isolation work, but most people, they spend too much time doing isolation work. We've all seen guys doing 20 sets of curls at the gym. And, you know, I can do an entire full body workout and people are still working on one muscle group. And I have way better results, more importantly. And just like everyone who focuses on compound moves does too, not just me. Now, out of all these compound exercises, the ones that are most growth inducing are also the hardest ones. Barbell squats, Barbell deadlifts, right? These are going to give you the most bang for your buck. If you only had time to do one exercise, it should be the barbell deadlift because that works your grip, works your upper back, works your lower back, and it works your legs. Now, I'm not saying that's the ideal, but if you had to drill it down to one exercise that's going to give you the most bang for your buck, it's the deadlift. Squats is a good squats is right there with it. Some will some will argue between the two of those. Some will say, oh, you get more with squats. Some with deadlifts. They're both great exercises. You should do both, but if 
you only have time to do one, it's hard to beat the functionality of a deadlift as well as the growth inducing properties of intense training with deadlifts. Ideally, you cover all five categories though. And let's say three sets of five to seven, three times a week is an example of, of a good starting point. Now, when someone gets really busy, just do one set per exercise and get out of there. So I like to have, here's the workout regimen and then here's a backup program. So let's say Monday, we're supposed to do three sets of five to seven in all five of these categories, but you're busy that day. Instead of saying, I'm just gonna skip working out, just do one set per category. And if you're super busy, just do the squats and deadlifts or you can do them on alternating days, deadlifts one day, squats the next day. That way you're still making forward progress. So don't get distracted by complexity. In the training world now, you see a lot of complexity, all these different moves. I mean, tons of different exercises. The problem with that is you never get good at the skill of actually training. Like if I wanted to learn how to play an instrument, I'm not going to play the piano on Monday and then the flute on Tuesday and then the violin on Wednesday and then the guitar on Thursday and then the bass guitar on Friday. I'm never going to get good at anything because I'm too spread. I'm spread way too thin. So I want to get good at the skill of deadlifting, squats, overhead press, pull-ups, torso work. So you just spend time on those. Now, have as much variety as you want within those categories, but don't overdo it where you have, you're doing a different version of each exercise every single time. Get good at those basic movements. That's going to give you the most bang for your buck. And also, as you get stronger on things like deadlifts and squats, it has a motivating – it's intrinsically motivating because as, as you get – as you're able to lift more than you were when you started, you're naturally going to be more motivated. So if you first started deadlifting and 135 pounds was daunting, you're like, wow, I can barely do that five times. And then a couple months later, you're deadlifting 250 five times. That's intrinsically motivating. You're seeing the progress. And your body's going to look different as you get stronger as well. It's not always – you don't always get bigger as you get stronger. But generally, when you get bigger, you're going to get stronger. So it's, it's using strength as a barometer is the way to go on that, in my opinion. Okay, so that's training in a nutshell. And I have a ton of articles on my website for people who want to delve further. Now, with nutrition, you want to make sure you're eating a diet that's very high in micronutrients as well as macronutrients. So you don't you – so when you – you want to pick your food choices very selectively. On a vegan diet, lots of nuts and seeds, lots of legumes. Those are the power foods. I think those are essential foods. Legumes are very essential because they're high in protein. They've got low glycemic carbohydrates. They've got a good amount of fiber. The nuts and seeds fuel you with healthy fats for sex hormone production. Things like hemp seeds and pumpkin seeds are very high in zinc. Magnesium is also really high in hemp seeds. And these are really important micronutrients for your sex hormones, which in turn will improve your training. But they're, they're important in general. So those, those are things I eat every day. Nuts, nuts and seeds and legumes, that's a daily thing for me. Then I, I like oats. I like fruits and vegetables. I'm not someone who has this paranoia about equating fruits with sugar. I think that's ridiculous because fruits are really high in micronutrients. They're really high in polyphenols and antioxidants. No one, no one is fat in America because they're eating too much fruit, right? right? It's not because you had two. I was like, man, if I could just cut back on those bowls of blueberries, <laughs> you know, I would finally get rid of this stubborn fat. Right. Like every time I eat an apple, I just want to eat five more. Okay. No one says that. Even with legumes, nuts, and seeds, I have a big plate each night. I don't go back for seconds or thirds or fourths. You know why? Because it's filling. 
it's not only filling calories wise, but it's filling nutrition wise. So let's forget about calories. There's always a focus on this is how many calories you need. The less nutritious your food is, the more calories you're going to be provoked to eat. The more nutritious your food is, the less calories you're going to have to eat. And you let your hunger be an indicator of how much you eat. So some are like, well, if I want to get bigger, I'm just going to have to force feed myself. And that's not a good way to look at it. Here's what's going to happen, though. If you do the exercise regimen I mentioned, you're focusing on deadlifts and squats, your stomach's going to become a bottomless pit, especially when you first start. You're going to be ravenously hungry. It's because of the exercises that you're ravenously hungry. It takes so much out of you. So go with that hunger. You know, eat until you're content. And also eat slowly. One of the biggest reasons people have digestive stress is because they eat really fast. Watch most people eat. And they're trying to get through it as quickly as possible so they can get back to whatever they're doing. A lot of times they're looking at their phone or doing, or they're distracted. I went to a, a buffet with a friend of mine, an Indian buffet. It's called Mint, best Indian restaurant in Vegas. So anyway, there's a buffet with a lot of vegan options, vegetarian options. Now, my friend had maybe two or three plates for, for every one plate I had. You want to know why? Because I'm a very slow eater. I really take my time. It takes me over an hour to eat my dinner. It's my largest meal. But it takes me at least an hour to eat it because I'm just taking my time. I'm chewing things thoughtfully. I'm not going, okay, good. I can get back to where I want to go. So even though I had a large meal, I'm never bloated after eating this meal. And I never have to go take a nap after eating this big meal either because I take my time with it. It also happened, this is, and this is after I've trained. So I'm already a lot more hungry, but I still take my time because the better digestion the more nutrition you're going to pull from the food you eat. One of the reasons why a lot of people who eat healthy food are still not getting all the nutrition they need is because they eat too fast. The more you chew your food, the more of the properties you're going to absorb as opposed to just swallowing chunks of food whole. You're not chewing anything. So that's the number one thing I tell people is if you want to improve digestion, which everyone should, slow down. That's, I mean, if you just did that alone, your digestion is going to improve. You're not going to be all gassy and bloated and tired after a meal, even if it's not the highest quality meal, if you slow down how long it takes for you to eat. So I'm a slow eater. That thing makes a big difference, especially when you're first getting into a lot of these vegan foods that a lot of people may not have, their body is not acclimated to it yet. I mean, the, the, the post that got the most feedback on Instagram that I ever put up, right? It was a facetious post. It was just a meme. I'm being funny. And I talked about how like couples shouldn't have gas in front of each other. I go, it's unattractive for the relationship, right? right. That, was the, that was the gist of the meme. Now, a lot of people posted on there defending their digestive stress. They're like, oh, you know, I eat a lot of vegetables. So my wife and I are farting in front of each other all day long. That's just the way it is. I was like, I was like, it's not because you're eating a lot of vegetables. It's because of the way you're eating a lot of vegetables. You're eating too fast. I eat a lot of vegetables too. And I eat legumes, which are notorious for you hear You hear beans. People automatically think, yeah. oh, yeah, you're going to be ripping all night if you eat that. <laughs> and you may if you just started off eating them. But. I don't, and I've been eating this way for a long time. And one of the main reasons is because I don't stress my body with food. I take my time. I chew through it. Also, it, it's also pretty sad that that's the post that got the most feedback that I've ever put up because I've put up posts about how to help kids in human trafficking type situations, how to help animals, how to help homeless vets. You're not, you're not even going to get one comment if you're lucky on those kind of posts. But you put up a post where I'm just being funny 
and all of a sudden people take it seriously. People right. are getting offended on right. it. They're like, oh, you know, who are you to tell me? I mean, you should you go go read the feedback. It's hilarious. But it's also pretty sad that that's what people are getting offended about. Yeah. So anyway, I won't I won't go off on that segue. <laughs> and then I now we hear this narrative of don't worry about protein, you're getting all the protein you need. Okay, I don't think people should be overly pedantic about protein intake, but it definitely needs to be a concern. In other words, you need to make sure you're getting a certain amount. Don't think that you can eat 40 grams of protein and, and you're 200 pounds and you're going to build muscle. That's just not going to happen. Protein is important. Now, do you need a gram per pound of body weight? No. Do you need two grams per pound? No. But I would say a good barometer is one half a gram per kilo. This is what Franco Colombo, he's he passed recently, unfortunately. He was a great guy. He's a legendary bodybuilder, Arnold Schwarzenegger's best friend. I used to get chiropractic adjustments from him when I lived in Los Angeles. He and I talked about nutrition. He didn't have any kind of vegan bias. He was a meat eater. But even he said one gram of protein per kilo, not pound, and then maybe an extra 30, 40 grams when you're trying to build muscle. So if you weigh 200 pounds, that's less than 100 grams. So you're going to be taking in maybe 120 to 150 grams of protein, give or take when you actually want to build muscle. If you're not even trying to build muscle, you can take less than that. And it's not always how much protein you're taking in, it's utilization of protein. And the more protein you consume, the less efficient you get at consuming it, and now you need to keep consuming more. And there's a notorious joke about bodybuilders at Gold's Gym in Venice where they walk around with Lysol cans because they're constantly ripping on command from all the excessive protein <laughs> intake they're taking, that they actually have to spray the areas they're walking around. No kidding. Okay. Now, I've been to that gym, and I can tell you, it's not the most pleasant smelling gym in the world. Most gyms don't smell that great. This one has a different level, though, all right? So this, and look at where all the excessive protein consumption recommendations come. It comes from bodybuilding magazines and websites where generally they're sponsored by protein powders, or they sell it themselves. Now, I'm not anti-protein powder. I have a protein shake every morning, and I think it's great for convenience. Sometimes I have one after training, but a lot yeah. of times I don't. I just have dinner after training. So I don't overdo protein powders. I'm not chugging them all day long. But at the same time, a lot of times people take protein powder because they can't possibly get all the protein that is being recommended from the food they're eating, even if they're eating a ton of animal protein. I'm trying to take in two to three grams per pound sometimes. So that means you weigh 200 pounds, you're taking in 400 to 600 grams of protein. I mean, come on, that's just absurd. And the digestive stress that comes with that should be a clear sign. Forget, we don't even have to have an argument. Right, about it. you're destroying just like, your kidneys. You such, yeah, you have such gut distress, come on. Is protein bad for the kidneys? No, not at good levels, but when you're taking such an excessive, it's, it's, forget about just the kidneys, it's just bad for your body in general. In general. Yeah. That's why you're, that's why it's just a big stress on your body. So with, with, now also there's some arguments that plant proteins don't have the same stress on your body as animal proteins. So maybe you could take more plant proteins than you could animal proteins without the negatives, but you still have to ask yourself, is that gonna improve your muscle building goals? In my opinion, no. Get the, get You need more than a lot of people are saying, but you need a lot less than a lot of people are saying too. So one gram per kilo plus an extra 30, 40 grams. Now, some people listening may be like, that sound that doesn't sound like much. Fine. Try taking in more than I'm recommending and see what happens. Maybe you're right. Maybe your body's different where you need some more. But I highly doubt you need three times body weight in, in grams. 
Yeah, definitely. It's highly unlikely that that's going to be the case. So when you're trying to build size, you know, let your appetite be an indicator of how much you can eat. In other words, don't deprive yourself as long as you're genuinely hungry. Keep eating. And you're generally going to find that maybe it's three to 500 calories more than you would normally eat per day. You know, don't overdo it. Don't take an extra 200 grams of protein or, or, two, or, or 2,000 calories in every day. You're just going to add a lot of body fat. Most people are not trying to bulk up. They want to add quality muscle, and that's going to be a fairly slow process. If you add 10 pounds of actual muscle in a year, it's going to be transformative in terms of what your physique looks like. If you add just 20 pounds where most of it is fat, it's going to have a real negative impact on your physique composition. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. Well, Mike, we, uh, we've been going for almost three hours, man. I, I can't tell you how thankful I am oh. for your time. <laughs> like I I've learned so much just talking it. with you. Uh, we've talked about hormones, uh, depression. We've talked about, um, diet fitness. I, I, I mean, I love this, man. I don't want the conversation to end. Like, like where can people find you to learn more about this? Because I think you have a lot of great info to share. And I know on Instagram, you're Mike Maller 73, right? Yep. And go to my website. Yeah, Instagram is MikeMuller73. Instagram is actually the only social media website I, or, or, or social media source I use. I actually got rid of, rid of Twitter and Facebook just because I felt both were a waste of time. I, I've debated getting rid of Instagram as well. But I find that the way I use it, I can just deliver content and not waste too much time on there. So the way I use Instagram is I put it in my phone about once a week. I load up a bunch of content and I delete it. So it's not a distraction. So anyway, I don't want to consume too much on there. So that's that's certainly one area you could go to. But if you want to be up to date on the content that I deliver, go to my website, MikeMahler.com. Sign up for my newsletter. When you sign up for it at the, as a first-time user, you get a free report, everything you need to know about testosterone and how to optimize levels. That's on there. So you get that right away. And then I send out weekly updates for the most part on what I'm doing. I have a podcast with my friend, Sincere Hogan. We've got 250 episodes. We actually stopped doing it last year. We both just needed a break, but we're going to get that going again probably later this month. So there's 250 episodes where a high percentage of them are fitness people and anti-aging experts and so forth. As we take the show in a new direction, we're going to focus more on people that are doing nonprofit type stuff, people that are doing compassionate work for people, animals, et cetera. And what, I think we're always going to have a component of hormone optimization and anti-aging and training, but it's, it's not going to be as strong a component as it was because we, I mean, how much can you say about training after a while until it becomes redundant? And we've had a lot of episodes on that. But anyway, all that stuff is archived. So there's, there's a ton of information on my website on training, on nutrition, on hormone optimization, on depression, whatever I'm into, I deliver information. So check that out. And then I have an ebook called The Aggressive Strength Solution for Size and Strength. It's an ebook I wrote a while back, but it's loaded with programs, training programs for people who want to get bigger and stronger. It's 10 bucks. It's extremely inexpensive. And it's going to have enough training programs to keep you busy for the rest of the year and then some. Awesome stuff, man. Well, yeah, I'll have all that linked in the show notes in the description. Uh, below this episode so definitely go and check out mike's stuff and again man thank you so much and looking forward to our next conversation and if you're ever in the east coast man hit me up we'll go to a concert or something that sounds good yeah i'm sure i'll be back there at some point i'll definitely do that that sounds great